right, hosting Saturday Night Live. You know, I actually was not their first choice this week. They did want somebody from the NBA, though. Um, but being Yom Kippur and all, I was the only one they could get. Uh, I'm one of the few non-Jewish players in the NBA, Alex. <laughs> Charles Barkley, reminding, oh, rem- reminding okay. me of my chosen people, are not very athletic. You know, we... He's joking because there aren't a lot of Jewish players. I actually have to dissect this a little bit. So Charles Barkley was saying... He was saying, I'm not Jewish, so yeah. I could host Saturday Night Live oh, this okay, week. Yeah, yeah. Because there are so many Jews in the NBA, mm-hmm. um, and they're all busy because it's Yom Kippur. Yeah. But the joke is is that there's not a lot of Jews in the NBA. I mean... Because we're not very athletic people. That's, that's the joke. Well, it's also an accurate, probably, summation of the breakdown of the... <laughs> it's definitely yeah. accurate, but I mean, we don't... You need to rub it in? All right, we don't play in the NBA. <laughs> like, we got other good things... You know, Charles, Chuck, <laughs> Charles outfits on SNL are pretty good, too. Oh, my God. Did, did, Casual uh, pleated pants. In the I had 90s forgotten movie. that that the intro to the Nirvana Charles Barkley up this week we're talking yeah. about has like the Barney the Dinosaur opening. Do you remember this one? No. This was like a huge <laughs> deal for me when I was nine years old. Like there's the opening monologue clip is Charles Barkley. Um like playing one on one with Barney the dinosaur. Oh, okay. And he like beats the shit out of Barney the dinosaur. It's very funny. It's probably how it would go. Down. And it was like yeah. one of those back of my head memories that I when I saw it watching the episode this week, I was like, <laughs> oh my god! Like I remember like this is a huge deal to me when I was ten. Was Charles Barkley beating the shit out Dunking of Barney the Barney? dinosaur? Yeah, it was such a big deal. Um, yeah, Charles Barkley. It was just funny. It was funny seeing. Him I feel like your development week. as a kid was different from mine. Go on. Yeah, I don't know. That's. Just- <laughs> <laughs> My that man. wasn't a big deal to you? <laughs> no, Barkley and Barney. Were... Well, those were two two of my heroes, Alex. Great. Growing up. I don't know if they were Rory's heroes. You were a little bit older than us, so I don't know if Barney was was your guy or not. We may have been too old for Barney. Yeah, too. no, I, I missed the Barney train. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we did too, Rory. Don't worry. <laughs> well, at least when Barkley beat him up, it was a big deal for me. So, um, All right. We have a really cool guest this week. We have a really cool band to talk about. I don't, I don't want to fuck around up top, Alex. Don't. I just want to. I want to get into the show. Let's do it. Okay. This is tonight's musical guest today. The podcast where we discuss the cultural memory and career arc of bands and artists through their late night TV show performances. Some good, some bad. Always late. Welcome to the show. I'm John Hillman, and with me is my good friend Alex Beaton. Hey, John. Alex, how are you? I'm good. Good. All yeah. right. Enough of you. So we have a very <laughs> special guest today, Alex. Yep, we do. Um, he is a musician. He's a producer. He's a founding member of the band The Stereo, which just released a great new comeback record, 13, last year. Don't call it a comeback. Well, it was the first record in like 20 years. I think yeah, we can call enough. it a comeback fair enough, record. Fair enough. Is, that, Rory, is it okay to call it that? It's been 20 years. I, I, I like a comeback, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm into that. Um, their 1999 debut, album 300, was named one of the top 10 most influential albums from 1999 that shaped punk today by the Alternative Press in 2009, Alex. You know this? I didn't know that. Well, that's true. Um, and most importantly for us, he's a founding member, lead guitarist, and co-lead singer of the Austin, Texas band The Impossibles, mm-hmm. which for you and I was probably one of the most important bands for our own budding musical friendship in high school. Actually accurate. Not yeah. to make Rory feel weird, but it's true. <laughs> oh, too late. Uh, Rory it. Phillips is here. Rory, welcome. Hello. How are you? I'm I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you so much for letting me do Nirvana, which to me is like letting me do The Beatles. Like it, it is, is yeah. the largest uh, band as far as like late night television show appearances that you could have me talk about. Well, so it's one of those things where I don't know if you there's this podcast Doughboys. 
very popular chain mm-hmm. restaurant podcast, and they'll never cover McDonald's. Right. This is their white whale. They like, refuse white whale. to cover yeah. McDonald's, like mm-hmm. formally speaking. Right. They always want that to be maybe the final show ever or whatever. Right. <laughs> and so I think when we started this podcast, the idea maybe was like, oh, they're getting to Nirvana. Like, how are we going to talk about right. Nirvana? You know? And then, of oh, course. So this is this it? Yeah. <laughs> well, and the I, last episode? Yeah, yeah. Well, it could be, honestly. It's my, <laughs> I mean, it's going to be hard topic. We treat you. every episode like it could be our last. Exactly. You know? We live every day like yeah. it could be our last. Yeah. Um, and. But I just remember, you know, when we were DMing with you, Rory, and you suggested Nirvana, I was like, look, if we're going to do Nirvana, we might as, have one of, might as well have one of our musical heroes on the show to do Nirvana. And once again, not to make Rory feel weird, <laughs> but, you know, growing up, jamming as like a 17-year-old, playing like so much, you know, with my friends, uh, or priorities intact with my friends. I mean, this is shit that we did, you know, 20 years ago. So um, it's really, really great to have you. And uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, man. It's so great to well, meet you. Thank you so much. I'm I'm humbled and it warms my heart. You know, you, you make these songs, you put them out, and you just hope that they connect with somebody somewhere. And I've got I've had the pleasure and privilege to meet so many people that have kind of similar stories like that. And thank you for saying that. It's it's kind of surreal, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also cool to have you on to talk about this band because it has such a strange. Um relationship with their fan base and the effect it had <laughs> sure. on Kurt and, yeah. um, and with the world. I mean, it changed an entire, I mean, I, I feel very generic uh, being a generation X, uh, you know, 40 something white male uh, saying Nirvana changed my life. I feel like that is maybe the most stereotypical thing uh, about me. Maybe I mean, <laughs> but, it's, but it, if it's it, accurate, you know, it's like a common story for yeah. a reason. We still had the monoculture and smells like teen spirit yeah. really uh, di- was seismic for, for tons of people. But I not, you know, not only was it seismic for me there, I then went super deep and, and mm. I've been waiting my entire life for someone to ask me any question <laughs> about Nirvana. because it, not only was I, I like a super fan uh, uh, back then, which was different from being a super fan now. So like I'm, yeah. I have an encyclopedic yeah. knowledge of Nirvana for someone whose knowledge kind of ended in 2003 uh, after like reading heavier than heaven, like reading the second book there was come as you are was the Michael Azarad book in the nineties. The and then they had heavier than heaven, which uh, those, those two books are sort of in conversation with each other. Then I, I kind of like took my foot off the gas and now there are people on TikTok and Instagram and stuff who blow me out of the water. They know every single detail about every single thing that ever happened for the entire run that the band was together. Uh, but as far as that like older school version of it, I, I feel uh, pretty pretty good about my my knowledge of Nirvana. And then in 2003, uh, I got to work with. Gary Gersh, who was Nirvana's manager, and Andy Wallace, who mixed Nevermind. Yeah, yeah. So, it, like, in my life, I've had that experience of being the the 15-year-old that uh, just goes totally ham, super fan on a band, and then getting to sort of, like, meet some of tangential heroes that were sort of associated with the band later when I was producing music. So I feel super fortunate for that. And uh, I have like a bazillion things to say about Nirvana. <laughs> well, that, that is really cool to hear, actually. And I think that's a good segue before we get started on the band very quickly, because we do have a bunch of things. We have a couple of things we wanted to we'll broach with you, Rory, 
and put you on the hot seat. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So first off, there is a little bit of six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing. Oh yeah. That we need okay. to that we need to quickly discuss regarding our lives and your life. <laughs> okay. It's it's pretty tangential, but we still want to bring it up. Alex, I'm gonna I'm gonna I hand lo- the mic I love to you. It. Yeah. No, I just I just tried to do this with Nirvana. I love that you're trying to do it with me. <laughs> so okay, so this is so we uh, this is an, a weird thing, but in like 2001, you and I were ships passing in the night because I joined a band called Model Kit. Um, they were called oh, 100. Okay, they were know, called I the Carpet it. Patrol, and then they became Model Kit. Uh-huh. Yeah, and Carpet Patrol, weirdest name. Uh, do you know what the name Carpet Patrol means? I don't really. <laughs> I, I'm assuming it's like sexual in nature, maybe. No, no, it is uh, crack related. Uh, so, uh, oh, the band, yes. the band told me that it was, uh, it was a term used for crackheads who would, uh, look search, for crack in the, <laughs> search the carpet for little shreds of crack that might have gotten lost. Huh. Uh, now, now that story, you know, imagine the band that would name their band that. And then if you saw the band Carpet Patrol, they are not going to look anything like the band that you have in your Couldn't head. Couldn't be more opposite. Named after a, uh, a after crack slang. <laughs> yeah. So so they made the re- they made that EP with you. It was like you know eight songs or whatever. And then I guess through the recording of that, they were like, oh, we need a different drummer. So so I actually joined the band right after they recorded with you. Wow. And then became yeah. the guy who like played on that record. Mm-hmm. I was, let's, let's hear a little bit of that record, shall we? <laughs> oh, gosh. It's so embarrassing <laughs> now. It's like such Weezer. No no offense to the drummer for that band. But oh, he, yeah. Sorry. This is really like, struggling yeah. in, that, in that recording session. Really? I feel um, oh. I have, I've struggled in recording sessions, too. Yeah. Uh, and so I understand why they got a different drummer. And that's amazing that you were the drummer for, out, for Model Kit. Uh, but, I mean, you've so far left out the most amazing thing about Model Kit. Yes. Is it the Alan Yang? Of course. Yeah. <laughs> what, else, what else is there? The about Alan Yang of it all? Alex yeah. was their drummer, the Rory. It's not, that's clearly the most famous yeah, thing Yeah, I was going to say, that, that's like but... the second biggest thing. But yeah. No. Um, is this still playing in the background? Yeah, I'll, you already turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, listen, the production. <laughs> no, we can, yeah, I mean, it does sound good. No, yeah, for sure. Oh, um, I, don't, I can't even speak to the, I, you know, I don't know what that sounds like. It may sound pretty bad uh, <laughs> i don't know it's just so fun. i was like 16 at the time yeah, they were yeah. seniors in college they were yeah, yeah. 21 22 and Classic. i went on like message board toniumpals.com if you're from the uh-huh. area you may remember it um and yeah i like you know drove my mom's minivan to shows for like a year and a half and then yeah. they broke up and then alan yang the bass player went on to become um, one of the most successful TV producers in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like does amazing things. So Parks and Rec, I got, Master of None. I think I we got talked about that on the show before. We have, yeah. yeah. I got an email from Alan randomly uh, right before Parks and Rec came out. And he was, uh, and I hadn't spoken to him since Model Kit. Yeah. It was like, hey, I got a job as a writer. Uh, we, we're doing this this new series. Uh, we'd really love for you to try to write a music theme song for the intro for it. Oh my god! Uh, and and I didn't. Uh, <laughs> my life was falling apart. It was it was like the worst timing ever. Like I got this email right when my girlfriend had broken up with me. Right. Uh, we were having to move out of our house. I didn't like. I couldn't. You know. I just didn't have the means to be able to sit down and write and record anything. Um, but yeah, that's one of those like 
for me, one of the the big roads untraveled. I'm sure a thousand percent that if I had I had written something, it would have just been one of like the ten things they didn't choose because the Parks and Rec theme song is uh, absolutely perfect True. for that. Season. But I mean, love, you're a very a talented, you know, pointed songwriter. I'm sure you could have come up with something pretty close. I mean. I don't know. I don't know what it would have been like, but it's have you still written a- for TV before at all, or after that? Um, I, I did. I've done some commercial work, but I've never. I don't think I've ever had anything go, mm. and so that, and that's kind of why I stopped doing it. Um, it's it's fun work to do, but uh, you, I, I kind of hate that feeling of being an also ran, where, where it's mm. like you kind of feel like the reason that they're asking you to make one is so that they have six to choose from. Like right. there's probably there's probably one or two that they already know that they're going to pick, but they just want to have like a nice variety to show the client, you know. Right. Uh, that's what it started to feel like after a while, and so I I just kind of got out of that whole right business. the boardroom nature of it all probably. Uh, it was yeah. fun while it lasted, yeah. you know. And I and I one of these days I keep thinking I need to find there's like a uh, a Burger King uh, chicken sandwich commercial that I that I scored. Somewhere on my computer. I need to put that on uh, Instagram or something. I need to find it. I, uh, I want to hear I it. I was going to say, there's, there's got to be a market for like the the like B-sides of Rory's uh, well, not, work. Not to bring up you know, Ween again, who I brought up multiple times on this show. But sure. they had one of the all-time funniest oh, yes. commercial experiences where they tried to record an ad for Pizza Hut. Right. And they recorded a song called Where'd the Cheese Go? I don't know. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. it was about like the stuffed crust pizza or whatever. And it's like the, one of the catchiest jingles you'll ever hear in your life. And it's like super funky and fun like Ween can do. And of course, Pizza Hut was like, no, this is too weird. We're, we're never putting this on there. Right. And now, of course, Ween put it out on YouTube. And it's like a, a secret Ween favorite fan thing, you know, where the And that was before, before all commercial advertising became sort of absurdist kind of Old Spice style. Right weirdness right yeah, yeah exactly it right Ween was, ahead of the curve. Ween was definitely ahead of the curve on that <laughs> it's um, the monoculture yeah, yeah exactly um and then so we okay we talked about model kit we yeah, did it we did that we was did. fun and, it, and it's actually really funny that that parks and rec story came out um but in the last thing i wanted i think this kind of sets us up to, for the conversation today yeah but i did want to pull this we're going to pull you again on the hot seat rory a little bit with a quote of your own that oh, i pulled oh baby um okay. So, you know, we're... Wait, per- am I going to get canceled? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, this classic setup. <laughs> definitely, definitely not. There is nothing cancelable in what I'm about to read. Um, because I was, you know, I was watching... This is preparation, you know, for meeting you today. I was watching the little documentary that comes on at the end of the final Impossibles DVD show. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, it yeah, does yeah. a little bit of history of the band, and you know, and yeah. all of you guys are being interviewed and stuff. And... Uh-huh. I was just watching it for fun, really. But then you had this quote that I thought was kind of fascinating, both for the show that we do and for the band we're talking about today. I'll just read this quote. So you're getting interviewed and you say, the thing that happens whenever you start a band when you're 17 and you're in a band that has that much history is we've kind of painted ourselves into a corner artistically. And the point I had to come to and some of the other guys in the band had come to is you really feel like you start to become haunted by the history that you've got. We could have kept stretching the impossibles and dragging it in new directions, but every time we would have taken a turn, it would have been one more turn away from what one group of people liked as our band. So really, it just felt better to leave it as it was. And this is from 20 years ago, talking about the breakup of, of the Impossibles. And I wanted yeah. to read that quote because so much of what we talk about on this show is bands that do stick around, right? Because we need to have some sort of history to, yeah. to talk about. Um, and they do change. And we've had some like R.E.M. that did it with great success and changed a lot and had 
you know, made a lot of great music. We've had others that I won't name that maybe <laughs> experienced exactly what you described. They stuck around and it didn't really work out, at least right. in our opinion. And then we have a band like Nirvana today that really didn't have a chance to yeah. make that decision, right? And so I, I want to hear from you, like, how do you feel today about that dynamic that you described now that you're older and it's 20 years later, you have a band that just recently got back together after, after 20 years and you're even longer for when you were in the band. Um, yeah, so when you've been in bands, there are bands that you've worked with or bands that you've been a fan of, does that quote still resonate for you as, as you've gotten older? Man, it's, it's so funny trying to be in conversation with your younger self. I know, uh, yeah. The, sorry to uh, yeah. put you in that weird spot. but <laughs> No, I, I like it. Um, uh, that sounds pretty insightful uh, for me at that age. And and it, it does make sense in the sense that back then I was uh, so against the idea of kind of just continuing to do the same thing. Like in my mind, I, I, I had this weird thing where there were kind of two, two types of artists. There was the David Bowie, which like you said, is like the one who evolves and like changes and finds all these different avenues. And it seemed really artistically satisfying to be David Bowie. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's ACDC and ACDC like clockwork will put out, you know, a very similar sounding album every couple of years uh, and they're great and the songs are great, but it's, it's kind of like following this, this pattern and this path. And for some reason I had in my head that that was like artistic death, basically, even though I love ACDC, uh, I didn't want to, to fall into that now in retrospect, uh, uh, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, why didn't I just, you know, be ACDC and just like be a musician <laughs> and, and like do it for longer and, you know, be real big fish, uh, and go out there and and tour the circuit and uh, yeah. you know keep it going and I, I I do kind of in in hindsight see more upside to that version of it than I could at the time where, where yeah. at the time I was like I was also like the time at the time that we did that I was transitioning into producing and I was working with a band called Recover um, from yeah. Austin Texas and I think I was just starting to feel like, oh, you know, this is my metamorphosis. I'm sort of like going from, you know, being in a Scott Punk uh, band that I was in to now I'm a producer and I'm producing this music that is uh, more uh, cool. S- serious, uh, even. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was a lot cooler than anything I had done. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm achieving something by, by sort of doing that. Um, now, in hindsight, I realize how much love there was for the Impossibles, and I feel a little silly for not just wanting to like perpetrate that love. Mm. At the same time, uh, we were maybe around for the exact amount of time that we should have been, right? Like, mm. like the the uh, we we hit some real highs. We didn't have a ton of lows, and I still get to meet people like y'all that you know say. Uh, I, I really loved that song, uh, back then. And it really spoke to me and, uh, helped inspire me to make music, which is really like the, the biggest compliment you can get, you know, like it, I've never talked to Billy Joe Armstrong, but, uh, if I did, I would tell him that the fact that green day, uh, put out Kerplunk like changed my life because it was the first music I ever heard that made that seem attainable, like made being in a band and making records and everything seem attainable, uh, even more so than Nirvana. Like Nirvana definitely got me to learn how to play guitar. And I loved that band more than anything. But uh, it wasn't until I found Green Day and Operation Ivy 
that I actually saw examples where I was like, wait a minute, you know, like maybe, maybe I could do this question right. mark. Nirvana, <laughs> Nirvana was just too outside the bounds of what you considered possible of you making creatively yeah. or it was yeah, too, totally. too and unique and complicated. Heroin, or, you know? like, yeah. Even though <laughs> like, I guess I everyone thinks, of, everyone thinks, right. I mean, everyone thinks of Nirvana as like still one of the more like, I don't know, accessible. There's still, you know, yeah. pop chord, sure. some pop power chord stuff. And, but, you know, but also, you know, they sounded huge when they showed up with Nevermind. Do you know what I mean? Like, you listen to Nevermind, you're not like, oh, yeah, I could make that. <laughs> you know, it still right. sounds yeah. like a million bucks. Right. Um, yeah. And also, too, just I think from, and probably when you were consuming Nirvana, the myth of Kurt was already around. Do you know what I mean? Oh, 100%. So yeah. I think, you know, Green Day never had that about them, where it's like these rarefied artists, you know, which I think Kurt came out the shoot being treated like that right so um i can see how green day is like oh okay cool yeah let me get on the train mm. where nirvana is like i want to be on the train but i'm gonna watch it you know right um but yeah just to wrap up this conversation rory so i mean basically i think what i'm hearing from you is that there is a little bit of regret that you guys broke up when you did and, and do you think I, it's just funny when we think about bands that we've talked about on the show or some others we talk about just for fun um and you know oh my god they're putting out it's like the simpsons they're putting out their 11th album and it's just the same and it's kind of shitty and depressing <laughs> you know and you guys never did yeah, that yeah. and obviously you have two you know incredible albums two really good eps i mean it's there's nothing you guys have put out that you can look back on and be feel bad about right and that's a great place to be in but do i wish that like it was 2010 and i was 25 years old and i saw the impossibles at the middle east in boston like fuck yeah you know so like i i feel those twin pulls on yeah. me for you guys and for a lot of bands that we've talked about you know yeah, 100%. I mean, if I could like take a peek into the parallel universe where that happened, maybe I would be uh, you know, abhorred by it and I would not want that at all. Right. If you if you want to hear me talk about uh my feelings more in depth, I did uh, an episode of In Defense of Ska where I talk about ska shame. Yeah. And that was a big part of that that quote that you uh, pulled from that that DVD interview. Uh that was also very much in the mix at, at that point too, you know, like just sort of like feeling like, Oh God, ska is over. I, I need to put this at arm's length at least. Yeah. And now I do not feel like that at all. Now I see stuff like Jeff Rosenstock and I'm like, Holy shit. Like this was actually, there was actually a lot of possibility here yeah. that I was blind to. And I could have tapped in, tried to tap into it. And I could have maybe taken the impossibles to like, another level right of course we also could have kept it going and run it into the ground and made a bunch of records that no one listened to and no one liked but so, i mean you did it's, a, it's just know. funny to me we'll quickly end this conversation because we have to fucking talk about nirvana um but <laughs> i don't want to talk about Scott, <laughs> I mean, Shane, it, is, it is tough because i mean you just want to talk about rory about this stuff but the you guys did put out two very different records obviously the one you came back sure. and at your return is just totally different right um and I still, I love the songs on that record a lot. Um, and I just, did you have, when you put that out, were there people in the Impossibles fan base that were like, what the fuck is this? Where are the upstrokes? Like, did you have those kind of moments and conversations with people? Or were they like me? They're like, I love the ska stuff. I love the more rock driven stuff, you know? It was, it was really more the latter. And I think it's because we were never hardcore ska. You know what I mean? Like we didn't have a yeah. horn section. We weren't like wearing uh, checker black and white. And like we, we never went super into it. So because we were always sort of somewhere in the middle, I think it made the inner return sort of 
evolution of our music not as much of a a hard left turn as it might have been if we had been mustard plug uh yeah. or something like right that, you right know I mean? this, uh, yeah by the way you, the phrase ska shame hit me like right in my center like i like that's what brought i mean real man it's funny because real big fish was the like activator for me in like 96 to like get into yeah, yeah. a scene even before less than jake yeah real oh, big okay. fish was the first one then less than jake's where i was yeah. like oh i can be punk um, yeah. and then, you know, by the time I was 17, there was some real ska shame, you know? And I was like, oh man, I, you know, I'm way more into the Lawrence arms and alkaline trio and I gotta be serious, you know? And so the way you said that, at, there was a moment in time where ska was like a disease that you had to like treat, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. so I can see where you were at, you know? And it's, and like you said, you look back now and you see folks bringing it back some with more success than others, but yeah, it's, it's Scott shame. Gotta, gotta wipe it off. Gotta get rid of yeah. it. There's a new generation that has no shame about Scott and it's, it's phenomenal. It's yeah. great. Uh, Bad operation is a uh, band yep. that everyone should check out. If you want to hear new good Scott music, cat bite is cool too. All, all good, all good stuff happening. Yep. Um, all right. Well, we, we took you down that memory lane, Rory, and we appreciate you for, uh, indulging us and talking about the breakup of the impossibles because i was wondering i was just wondering after reading that quote and um you know thinking of fantasies of seeing you guys you know as 30 year olds on stage while we were in our 20s so (laughs) um so should we talk about the band of the day i guess this little bit this this band we've been waiting my whole life (laughs) i know i was gonna say we're really teasing him (laughs) um so yeah we're so you know every week we cover one band or artist through the arc of their late night tv show performances and in I, in I think in our uh, show description, we even name this band. In the show description, Alex, for, for tonight's musical guest today, we say Nirvana on Saturday Night Live. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's in there. It's in our little teaser promo yeah. that we've put out first, right? Um, so this is, it's almost kind of daunting and like intimidating to try to talk. Because like, everyone's talked about Nirvana to death. It's just like, who hasn't talked about or read about Nirvana? So I do, for me at least, like, I'm trying to stay in the lane of like, let's talk about the performances and like go into the, you know what I mean? But I did read Come As You Are, Rory, for this week. And so I have all these fucking quotes and polls and stories from that book that I'll probably have to mention. Um, But at the same time, it's just like, what what, what is there left to say? about nirvana at this point and so i want to like try to dig into actually what the point of the show is is we're just talking about these performances yeah but even to start off Rory, i want to hear from you because you've it multiple times like your personal history what it was like being a teen when i assume nevermind was the first thing you heard it wasn't bleach right yeah 100 percent uh yeah i and it was it was a weird experience to go backwards uh to bleach when you start with nevermind, but no, I, I vividly remember being in my friend's bedroom and he had like a little, you know, 12 inch tube TV that actually was hooked up to the the cable. And so he could watch MTV on it and we were watching MTV and smells like teen spirit came on and it was just like, like what, like yeah. what, what is this? What is, what is he saying? Uh, you know, what, what's going on here? Were you, were you 13, 14? How old were you? No, I was 15. 15, okay. In 91. Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I, it was just seismic. And, and I immediately wanted to hear it again. And that wasn't accessible. Like, you know, like people, right. <laughs> I, I hate to be like, in my day or in all that stuff. But, uh, 
I couldn't I couldn't go on YouTube and watch it again. I had to to just wait for it to be delivered again on MTV and and it's just running in my head the whole time. I'm just thinking about uh I just instantly fell in love with uh the the competition Mustang that he's playing, the guitar that, that Kurt's playing in that, the the uh striped shirt, just all the iconic things from it just instantly grabbed me. Uh I didn't I didn't have a CD player, but I bought the Nevermind CD <laughs> to, like in anticipation of when I would eventually. Did you buy a CD, CD player, player because you had that CD? Probably. Or did you? Uh, pretty. I mean, it was, you know, uh, of the like, I had that in like Ritual de Lo Habitual, the Jane's Addiction yeah. record. Mm. It was like, you know, uh, those were. 1991 Pack. Yeah. Yeah. The ones just waiting for the, the CD player to come. But I, I, I got it on tape. Uh, I listened to it in, in my Walkman at school, just on you know, nonstop. Uh, and then I, and then I just started going deeper and deeper and deeper and, and, you know, come as you are the, the Michael Azarad book, uh, was, was part of that. And just any magazine I could get my, my hands on, um, the, uh, local record store sound exchange in Austin would have bootlegs. Uh, and so then you could go even a little bit further than anyone else could into like new songs be- that they would play live that hadn't actually been released yet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, I went to like Waterloo Records and I, I got a seven inch that had uh, the demo version of Dumb on it. Or it's not a demo version. It's a, I later found out it's a, a radio recording. Like they were playing it live uh, on a radio show. Uh, that's now in the box set. And, and in my opinion is, you know, maybe the best Nirvana song. Uh, and it's not on any of the records, uh, but it's such a, a beautiful version of dumb. Anyway, I, I'm going to try not to spiral out here. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no wait. this is what was, this is what we're asking for. Let's let's spiral. Huge, huge, huge Nirvana fan. Um, and then and then, like I mentioned, sort of like later w- during my sort of uh, production uh, work days when I started producing records and stuff, I was working with the band Recover, and they they start they got into like a, a sort of mini bidding war. And one of the interested parties was Gary Gersh. And Gary Gersh was the manager for Nirvana. I knew Gary Gersh from reading Come As You Are. Right. Uh, and I knew about Gas. And uh, Silva was, uh, John Silva was the other one. I, I, I met John Silva also through that bidding war uh, process. So that was just surreal. Yeah. Uh, I, I was incredibly fortunate. Uh, uh, Recover kind of let me ride along while they were going through that whole experience. And, uh, for a Nirvana fan, that was just like an amazing dream come true. Yeah. And then we finally got to mixing Recover's record and they pulled in Andy Wallace, who is the person who mixed Nevermind. And I got to be there while he was mixing it. And that, you know, is did you, a I mean, did you talk experience. shop about Nevermind or were you cool and collected about it? <laughs> I, I didn't. I'm yeah. not that I'm not that guy. I don't get like when I see people, even if they're my heroes, if I see people out, I just I never go up to them because I just I feel like I know what that's like on a much, 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 much lower <laughs> level. Yeah. And not to say that I don't want people to come up to me because absolutely I do. I'm a ham. I love for people to come and tell me that they love my, my music <laughs> or whatever. But I know when it gets to that point, like, you know, and how much has Andy Wallace been asked about? Never mind. Right, 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 right. Fucking every day of his life, right? right? Like maybe <laughs> yeah. that and the Jeff Buckley record. It's like th- those are the two things. Um, but I did you know, just through the, the nature of mixing the record, I learned some tricks. He uses this like uh, Yamaha flanger on bass. 
on every record that he does. And he mm. did that on Nevermind. And that was like the selling point. Whoa. Uh, was like, hey, we're going to put this flanger on bass. It's like, that, and that is not a, a standard thing. I was going to say that like, sounds really strange to my ears. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and if you listen to Nevermind, you're not like, is that flanger on the bass? Right. Like yeah, it, yeah, a yeah, very right. subtle effect that, that, that he does on it. Um, but that, you know, that came up. That was like one of the things and and one of the ways that he got Flanger on the base was by saying, Well, you know, I mean, it worked on uh never mind, you ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. He didn't put it that way, yeah, but sure. that was kind of the, the, the vibe. Well that's that's like what the equivalent is like, you know, John Lennon double tracked his vocals, Kurt. Like, mm. right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Right, right. That was right. The whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, so I guess I mean, who cares about our experience, I guess. But very quickly, I mean, Alex, what was, you know so no one gives a fuck about our lives compared to Rory's life. I mean, come on, but let's get you, it out of the you way. You matter, Alex. John. No, no, no. I see your person. I, I, I finally, um, someone has said that to me. Thank yeah. you. Um, so by the time I was getting into Nirvana, they were like mega huge. Um, and I don't remember. So oddly enough, the only Nirvana record I ever purchased before I could listen easily with Spotify and things like that was Muddy Banks of the Wooshka. Which um, I know, weird. Like it was just like I happened to um, be listening to the radio when that came out. Um, so it was the thing that had just come out, right? So I bought on tape. But you were like eight, right? No, that came out in what ninety? That was post. Oh, it was post Kurt stuff. I believe so. Okay, okay, okay. Um, so I was going to ask if you have any memory before he died of the band. No, definitely not. Okay, because I, I do a little bit, but go on. Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I think, you know, by the time I was listening to the radio and stuff like that, 95, yeah, by the time I got into, like, rock, um, he was already gone. Mm. Um, Foo Fighters were probably already a thing. Um, but yeah, so I remember getting that record and hearing all those, like, Bleach songs with Dave like and so then when I did the eventually you know I also felt like Nevermind you didn't actually have to own to know every single song like I know every song on Nevermind and I've never actually owned it right it's just one of those um, yeah. and but I remember hearing <laughs> Bleach and being like what <laughs> why are the you know I was like these songs are great you know like knowing like you know um, school and other you know mm. um been a son things like that where i'm like oh these songs are so good paper and, cuts yeah like and it's just um so yeah so i have a you know i can't really say that i'm like a deep diver like both of you guys are mm-hmm. um but i also do feel like by osmosis um dave Grohl totally influenced the way i play drums um oh yeah like i don't i don't do you know like i just feel like that's slamming and like super hard kick and snare like mm. And I, in some ways, I feel like it's maybe ruined my ability to move on as a drummer and like <laughs> develop because I'm like I just want to smash my because you never actually like did like cool techniques because you were yeah because I was just like dude possible. I want to like smash my drums into little pieces well you know I'm the exact same way yes so. exactly we yeah. both play the same way where yeah. it's like I want to destroy these drums and I think that's a big like Dave Grohl thing you know yeah well um, there I mean there is this incredible little story in Come As You Are where they talked about they had to change over. Dave's drum heads like every other take. Oh, I'm sure. In the studio because he just ruined them <laughs> yeah. from a recording quality perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After two takes, they had to change the heads every two takes on his toms yeah. and snare. It's like, Jesus Christ, yeah. man. Like, so I feel like... Can I ask, you, yeah, yeah, go, yeah go, Roy. Can I ask a question really quick? So what was it like when you heard uh, Dave play with Queens of the Stone Age? Awesome. Like... like Did, did it like... Because sh- for me, that shifted. Like, I th- I always thought of Dave Grohl, like you said, like the super heavy hitter that... Yeah. 
you know, just it's very simple and poundy. And then, and then the Queens of the Stone Age came out. It's just like he's doing a lot. Yeah, jazz. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that speaks to incredible. I think that speaks to his taste. Although I think he's he's maybe ruined that for me recently. But like you know, his in terms of like (laughs) you know, like he had this crazy amount of ability and was like. I'm not doing that on a Nirvana song because it doesn't serve the right. song, right? So mm. um, that to me is what comes across in that is that like when he did the stuff with the Queens of Stone Age, like what's that song? Um, the one with Mark Lanigan on it um, with the crazy long intro oh. that is mm. just so good, you know? And I'm like, yeah. yeah. So when I saw him do the the Queens of Stone Age stuff, it didn't like, I kind of had a sense that he was already there and was just choosing to kind of slam and be simple in Nirvana, which mm. made sense, right? Well, it's also just what he needed to do after Chad, basically. Like, that was the whole thing about Chad was like, he was too jazzy. He played too light. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and then of course, Dave comes in and just like, I mean, we'll get into it. Basically, yeah. Dave Grohl is like the reason Nirvana ever really worked. No, yeah, offense, no offense, Kurt. Um, and so very quickly for me, obviously, I have, I have an older sister who was nine years older than me. And so I definitely remember. Oh, uh, yeah. I guess remember the Nirvana thing. I don't know, because I mean, she definitely just because when I was. So if I was six and that was 1991, she was 15 in 1991. Um, so oh, same, basically, the, basically the same age as Rory, yeah. Um, oh. And so I definitely just remember never mind being around the house. I guess I have vague memories yeah, of like yeah. seeing the CD cover or, right. you know, hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit. I just remember those things very fuzzily in my brain. Yeah. And then I just do remember when Kurt died. I don't know why. I don't know if it was just my sister being upset or seeing the news and my sister watching the news and it being, you know, on the national news. Obviously, a huge national, huge story. Um, and so I just have... I just have these feelings in my body of like, I remember that ex- experience, yeah. you know, but I don't remember what I felt or what I knew, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I just, I think it was just a very normal thing where I turned 14 and bought Nevermind and it became my life for a year or whatever. You <laughs> they, know? Were, they were handing them out at that stage. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, <laughs> 14? Oh, nevermind. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, <laughs> and 16, then, you get in utero. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then 17, you list, finally listen to Bleach and you're like, what? And then you go like, what the fuck is this? And you're like, wait, no, I love this And then so four much. years later, you get to come back to it. Yeah. Right. And then you buy Incesticide and yeah. this is how everyone goes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they were just one of my big favorite things in high school. And then I feel like at a certain point I did the reactionary thing where I was like, are these guys overrated? Right. Like, uh, is this, is this like overblown? And they're like pretty now, highly rated. So, right. well, you know, know like, but I think possible. then you just get into your twenties and your early twenties and you think like, this is, you know, now I'm really into the real shit. And like I've, Nirvana was a high school thing. And like, yeah. now I understand like they're a little overblown and yeah, like, yeah. like they've just, you know, we have to understand that like, it wasn't that, Good, you that's know. Why, I think that's why. And then I you mature, yeah. and you mature even just a few years. You're like, "What the fuck are you talking about, you idiot?" Like, yeah. it's the, one of the best bands of all time. Like, yeah. obviously, right? And so, I just feel like you have those ebbs and flows of being a teenager in twenties, and you know, of understanding what Nirvana is and why they matter, or how do you think of them, and you know, and then you become an adult and you realize they're just, you know, and Kurt is just one of the best songwriters yeah. of all time. That's it. So. We also, too, you got to think about coming out of the 90s. There was so much sellout nonsense. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. if you're punk, you can't do anything. You know, so, like, right. there was, and I think for me, certainly, it was like, Nirvana's too big. I can't possibly, you know what I mean? And I think that's probably why I never bought the records at the time. And right. then I go back, and I'm like, oh, well, like this is so silly. Yeah, like you right. said, it's just dumb. But then Rory got to experience it as you organically rode the 
the escalator up with the band yeah. as a fan, you know, which is a whole I, different experience. I do remember getting ire from actual punks, though, for being like a Nirvana punk right. uh, at the time. Uh, I remember a guy screaming at me from across the street, uh, you are everything that's wrong with punk rock. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> my, my T-shirt and my cardigan and yeah. like my hair down to my, my chin that's right. bleach blonde. Uh, and, uh, you know, trying my, to do my best impression of, of Kurt Cobain. You're everything that's wrong with, oof, baby. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, all right. Let's, so let's quickly talk about, cause basically the way that we have structure today, their, their television debut isn't until nevermind. Right. right. So we got to talk about some shit before we even can watch the first clip. And we'll try to be quick because we're going long already. And I don't want to take up Rory's time. He's a real adult and he's a parent and he's doing this for fun. So let's let's not be here for like five hours. But hey, could be fun. Let, let's just quickly talk about, I think, especially just Kurt's upbringing, because it really just defines everything about his music and sort of the band itself growing up in Aberdeen, Washington, which is this little rural nothing town outside of Seattle. And I just wanted to read a couple of quotes here. This, this, this story about him growing up as a kid um, before his parents get divorced. And he says, his Aunt Mary gave him a bass drum when he was seven. Kurt would strap it on and walk around the neighborhood wearing a hunting hat and his dad's tennis shoes, beating the bass drum and singing Beatles songs like Hey Jude and Revolution. So this is little <laughs> Kurt Cobain, seven-year-old kid in Aberdeen, Washington, walking around the neighborhood, banging a bass drum, singing Hey Jude. You know, so it's just weird like to picture the Kurt Cobain <laughs> origin story. Yeah. Just very funny to think about. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, Corey, Rory, you've read all these books and stuff, so you have some context around this. About like Kurt's, like after the divorce, and you know, is kind of says like it destroyed his life. It changed everything about him. He became super introverted and ashamed and shy after his parents got divorced. And just talking about his like teenage life leading up to Nirvana in Aberdeen like living on the streets, like living sort of like as a homeless teen on purpose. And like, you just read about him, you know, going back and forth with his dad and his mom and constantly going and all this like weird internal domestic drama that goes on with his stepdad and his real dad. And like, it just a very intense upbringing around his story. And I mean, obviously just explains a lot about his music and his, you know, approach to life or whatever. But yeah, I mean, Rory, any, have you had any reflections on sort of like after you've read a lot of Nirvana stuff or about about Kurt's sort of childhood and what that meant for him and his like music and songwriting? Yeah, hundred percent. And also, my parents got divorced when I was fourteen. So wow, okay. the year before Nevermind comes out, my parents get divorced, and mm. so then you know I read Come as You Are, and it's like, oh my god, you know we're we're soulmates. Me and Kurt Cobain, we, we've got this like twin experience going on. Um, What's funny though, so you've read Come As You Are. Uh, the other kind of totemic book that I'm aware of is Heavier Than Heaven. And what's funny is in Heavier Than Heaven, which came out quite a bit later, what you find out is that a lot of Come As You Are is Michael Azarad printing the legend. So the the like homeless Kurt Cobain stuff and the um, he stole his stepdad's gun and pawned it to get a guitar like that whole story. Yeah. Uh, when you read heavier than heaven, you find out, you know, it's, it's like, eh, you know, adjacent to the truth. Yeah, <laughs> it like, doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't surprise me reading a lot of Kurt's quotes in this book, which are yeah. pretty ridiculous and over the top. So it doesn't kind of, yeah. it, it also, it's as Alex used to be a reference. Like yeah. this book is like, like Rory said, it's like contemporaneous with the band. 
Oh, it like yeah. came yeah, out yeah, in like 1993 or whatever. Oh, okay. So yeah. definitely a lot of what you're talking about, Rory, is like Kurt is like playing with the media and playing with how people are perceiving him at the time while he was alive, yeah. right? So that makes yeah. sense. A little bit of misbehaving. Pre in utero. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. right. But like starting, it's starting to have the Courtney Love, you know, that whole piece of it is starting to to grow. Um but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely spoke to me, and and it, and it, like I said, I think it's another sort of generational earmark. Like uh, like so many Gen X uh, kids went through that sort of like divorce uh, uh, element. Uh, I think that's part of the reason why everything connected so much was that he had that sort of shared experience. Right. And the last thing, I mean, before, because we really should just get to the clips, but I I do wanna <laughs> I do wanna read this quote from Kurt, which I thought was like. You know, in like the movie side, you've seen the movie Sideways, both of you. Yeah. So you know, in that that speech that Paul Giamatti gives, it's like the most on the nose speech about like what a grape means to him, mm-hmm. and like how it defines his personality, and like his approach to life is like you know it's thin skinned, but like it has power to it. Blah blah blah. And you're like, <laughs> I mean, I love that movie, but you're like, oh my god, this is the most on the nose quote about how a character defines himself I've ever heard in my life. Right. There's this quote from Kurt that I couldn't believe. That was like the exact same lane as this. So he's talking about like things he liked about as a child. And Azerod said, Kurt felt a special attraction to turtles. Quote, Kurt says, there's a fascination with them I really can't describe. Turtles basically have this fuck you attitude. I'm stuck in the tank. I'm miserable. I hate you. And I'm not going to perform for you. And then Azerod says, then there are those protective shells. And Cobain says, actually, those shells really aren't that helpful. It's part of their spine, and it's real sensitive. If you knock on the shell, it hurts them. So it really isn't that protective cover everyone thinks it is. If they fall on their back, it'll split open and they'll die. It's like having your spine on the outside. Whoa. So it's like, it's like right. so obviously what Kurt is saying here is, you know, I have all this aggression and I'm angry, but, you know, that shell, that shell that I put out to the world, it doesn't protect me. If anything, it makes me too sensitive and too and too open to the the threats I see in society or whatever. I was like, "Holy shit! This is the most on the nose well, metaphor quote I've ever heard in my life." Okay, but but on the nose is one thing, but that line of having your spine on the outside is like, oof, yeah, like man, is that true? I mean, I don't even know if that's true. <laughs> it might be true. I, mean, I don't know, but yeah. like, but as as a turn of phrase referencing where he is like. <laughs> my armor is also my downfall. Like it's just, and, and the spine on the outside thing is so interesting. Like him just being this like live wire that like is so sensitive. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I just couldn't believe that quote. It was ridiculous. Okay. So I, I think we probably should get into the, the first clip. So basically, you know, we'll talk about bleach, I think in clip two today, Rory, um, through the MTV okay. stuff. Um, but just, you know, obviously they go through a number of different drummers and Chris and him meet and, um, we have this quote, uh, an ad put out by Curtin Chris, heavy light punk rock band, Aerosmith, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Black Flag, Scratch Acid, Butthole Surfers, Seeks Drummer. This is the ad that Kurt puts out, and they finally find Chad Chan, which is funny. There's a lot of Aerosmith talk in, in Come As You Are. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, it, yeah. It's just funny thing about Kurt growing up with that kind of view of rock and roll i mean it sounds like he really liked aerosmith <laughs> it was just it was funny to me well it's like how do you how do you translate we're uh at that moment we're punk but we also have big catchy choruses well it reminds me of have you ever heard ian mckay talk about ted nugent yes like, yes. <laughs> like ian mckay fucking loved ted nugent loved above all else yeah. 
Uh, and that, that seems kind of analogous to me. Well, it's, it's kind of like we, we, we want to be weird and we want to be interesting, but we're not above some rock and roll thrills, right? Uh, sure. Which is what you get. You know? And then the only other thing besides, you know, when Chad get, gets kicked out of the band and, you know, Kurt just is incredibly demanding. I mean, this is the thing about Kurt Cobain. It's just so demanding all the fucking time. Imagine working with this guy on a daily basis and just yeah. like, it just sounded kind of like a nightmare. But even before that, I do want to mention this stuff around like this, like, and I want to hear from Rory on this, like all these uh, like music pieces in like 89 when Bleach comes out, they're all focused on the fact that these guys are like rural hicks, which mm. I didn't really understand reading uh, before reading come as you are. Like all of these journalism pieces are out like, you're talking about four guys in their early 20s from rural Washington who want to rock, who if they weren't doing this, they'd be working in a supermarket or lumber yard or fixing cars. Right. You know, and, and they're a little bit gross and a little bit awesome. <laughs> but what else would you be if you grew up in the backwoods and redneck hell town of Aberdeen? Uh, yeah. You know, it's like, and so it's just weird. I didn't understand that it was kind of the, the way they sold the band early on was like, Kurt's this like freak redwood, red, you know, redneck backwoods dude who's like yeah. bringing the, you know, real America, you know, this populist thing, which yeah. was like, I just didn't understand that was the first big sell of Nirvana, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Rory, please. A bit of a twang to him. Like if you if you listen, like there there is like a slight sort of southern. Even though they're you know very much not in the south, uh, there is a, a a little bit of that to the way that he sings that I think kind of almost brings like a Hank Williams kind of achy southern thing to it. Like it was mm. really funny. Like re, like watching these was really revisiting some of the songs for the first time in a long time. And I wrote down, you know, some of like what the songs sound like to me now, where I never would have thought that in the past. And I, I know you said we'll get to it in, in a minute with the video, but like school uh, totally sounds like Southern rock to me now. Like, like it's, it's such <laughs> a like, you know, swaggery sort of uh, Southern thing that I, and I never would have put my finger on that. Right. It's like a slow down, like Leonard Skinner DP where you put it on like the 33 setting when it's like a 45. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's pretty he's, he, also the way his voice breaks sometimes has kind of like a country thing to it. I don't know how to describe uh, that. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's, let's do it. So November 8th, 1991, they're going to make their television debut on the Word UK, Alex, we're back at the Word. Love it. So our second episode ever, Rory, we watched the TV debut of Rage Against the Machine in 1993, nice. also on the Word UK. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, the the clip starts right away with something that I had read about. Well, here's Nirvana, kicking it up good style, 600,000 copies of their album in the USA, and first time live on TV. See you next week. I'm going to all you people in this room know that Courtney Love, the lead singer of the sensational pop group Hole, is the best fuck in the world. So I've never seen this until watching it for this, which again kind of talks about how I was a huge Nirvana fan before a lot of this stuff was actually accessible. In the very beginning, he he starts off before they start the song by saying, Courtney Love, the lead singer of the sensational pop group Hole, is the best fuck in the world. Yep. And I had read about that in magazines so many times when uh, whenever this was sort of like at its height. To actually like see him do that on UK TV at the beginning, right. 
it's it's a little cringy to me like just that's such a weird way to like lead off your uh first television appearance uh but it was nice to finally like actually see it after reading right. it reading he, about it yeah like, i mean dave and chris right. must have been like dude why are you what are you doing like why are you saying this shit <laughs> like what? well maybe not chris because chris is like the king of saying absolute fucking nonsense yeah, 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 truly i still feel though he might have been like dude like say some other weird shit don't talk about fucking courtney love on tv like <laughs> what so can i ask so kurt is what 23 here no he's 24 um, because he dies at 27. This is 91. He's 24. He's 20, yeah. 23, 24. Yeah. And so Dave is what? 19? 20? Yes. Um, they're fucking young. I, <laughs> this yeah. is the thing that I have to keep reminding myself that they are young. Right. Um, it's No, it is true. It's kind of when you go back to like, God, they're fucking kids, man. Yeah. They really are and kids. I, I mean. I, I love watching this clip so much. A couple of things. The Izod cardigan that he wears yes. is Fucking iconic, and yep. I, I would have like knifed someone to have that uh, <laughs> with the Captain America T-shirt under it. Captain America. So do you you know who Captain America are? Oh, they're a band. No, I no, I didn't. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So Captain America. Uh, Kurt was super into this band called the Vaseline's, right? Yep. And one of the other clips we're going to watch, they do a Vaseline's cover. Uh, I, by extension, I was such a big Nirvana fan that I was a Vaseline's fan. Like right. that's how deep my Nirvana love went. And uh, Captain America was the band that Eugene from the Vaseline started after the Vaseline's. Apparently, uh, like okay. he was addicted to creating uh, bands that were named after things that were going to lead to lawsuits on copyright infringement because he was in the Vaseline's and then he was in Captain America. <laughs> uh, but with Captain America, they actually did get like a cease and desist on it. Uh, and so they had to change the name of the band to Eugenius, which they, they put out a, a pretty good record. <laughs> that makes me laugh. It. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at his T-shirt, you're thinking like, oh, you know, Kurt's just really into Marvel comics, I guess. That's all, no, honestly, that's what I thought. I had no idea about any of this. Yeah, that so. shirt is is him trying to promote the new new band from a singer for a band that he really, really loved. Right. Uh, and then by, by like putting it on TV. Right. And they, they'll do that. Uh, which they continue times. to do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of the clips right. we watched today. Yeah, a couple things. I mean, Dave's crash symbol falls off right away in the intro. Immediately. Like, <laughs> just, like immediately. It, it just right away gone. And I think it kind of fucks up the... There's different points where you can't hear Dave's drums all that well yeah. in this clip. There's something weird going on with Dave's and drum I, mix or recording on this. And when but. it started, I couldn't tell. I was like, is Kurt's guitar out of tune or is there some sort of VHS warble happening here? You know, like when he does the ding, ding, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, is the tremolo happening or is there some sort of VHS? I like... So there's some weird audio moments for sure. Yeah, and then there's this moment here where Chris jumps up on the dancers platform. Yes. There are these dancers throughout yeah. the entire cup that are doing like the Austin Powers like wave thing or you know it's like a little 60s late 60s like flower child dance the dancers are doing. it looks yeah. so weird along to smells like teen spirit and chris jumps up there and i think he drops his pick because during the solo he like fucks up or you can't really hear him playing the bass line yeah. correctly it's it's yeah. it's kind of funny what um, i wrote was where's chris and then i yeah. was like oh over there missing all his notes <laughs> um because he literally like you know they they cut out and it's just like Oh, there should be bass here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, oh. think, I think he dropped his pick. And yeah, he, you see him reach down for it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then the outro here, the only thing, last thing I wanted to point out, he doesn't say uh, of denial. I couldn't figure out what the fuck he's saying. He it says, sounds like Rocky Taylor. It's Roger Taylor. Roger. Okay, so who's Roger Taylor? He's in Queen. 
Roger Taylor's in Queen? I think so. Isn't Roger Taylor? Why, why did he say that though? I don't know. Are you sure that's what he's saying, Alex? Or you I just thought you were saying Mike Container. <laughs> yeah. I thought it does kind of sound. Like, I wrote it's Roger Taylor. I wrote Rocky Taylor. Yeah, but I Roger mean, Taylor is the drummer for Queen. Okay. Some, some, <laughs> some actual Nirvana super fan nowadays knows exactly what he's saying, and they're screaming at us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I am like, I, I immediately wrote down, "Oh, he's screaming Roger Taylor. Why is that? What's that about?" Yeah. Um, Oh, I really hope I'm right because I'm really they, planting they the flag. They play over most of uh, the end of, of the song, which did not age well. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, the, the word does that, I think. I feel like they Sometimes it was just the word like they, they didn't know what they had. They didn't know that. Yeah, they. Though, I mean, obviously Nirvana had, at that point, they picked up a lot of steam. They were becoming more. I think I read that it was like number 35 on the Billboard 200 yeah. when they went on this tour. Well, they said... In, at the beginning, he says they sold six hundred thousand copies. Right. Um, you know, so that's the the rocket ship taking off, right? Um, Any other last comments on this clip, Alex? Well, I liked how, as the word is always good about, mm-hmm. they bring in like people that look like they're real fans. You yes, know? so it's like a bunch of dudes in leather jackets. Though I do have this, I other. do have this quote from Dave Grohl. He says, this is the first time we have television cameras put on us, and the first thing we always thought about in the situation this was, how can we destroy this? And he says, some people look like they like Nirvana, and some people look like they like CNC Music Factory. <laughs> like, yeah. he, he just says, like, there's this like, little divide in the clip where there are about 20 kids up, up front who are losing yeah. their shit, and then you look in the back, and there's some people just kind of standing there with their arms crossed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, being like, what the fuck is this shit going on? Right. You know what I mean? Uh, so, but it was a little different from the Rage clip, where like, I feel like the whole crowd in the Rage Clip was like losing their shit. Yeah. And this one, it's a little early in the run of the word. And I think they're like, I don't know how to act. You know? Well, I also think that may be the impact that Nirvana had, right? Because two years later, right. grunge and being into like heavy, chaotic rock is much more like mainstream, right? And at this point, you would have seen Nirvana been like, uh, what? Like, <laughs> right. Um, if I can guitar geek out for just a second, please. Because I was uh, going to say, Roy, I mean, we've been following now. You're like an expert guitar maker, which I don't know <laughs> when that started. But you, know, you watch these it, guitars you make; they're fucking unbelievable. I am not an expert, but uh, it is a <laughs> hobby that I very much enjoy, and I think I'm getting better at it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I this clip is the you know it's the first ever television appearance, and he just right out of the gate has the iconic Jaguar, which yeah. is just. It's now the Kurt Cobain signature model that you can get from from Fender. Uh, it's to me, it's just the the guitar that I'm I imagine Kurt holding anytime that I, I picture him in my head. Uh, right. And he uses it for a couple of different clips here, but uh, it's so beautiful and and changed like instantly imprinted on me. I, I think the first time I ever saw it was in the Lithium video, uh, but it, it imprinted on me like my idealized version of a guitar i never got to play a jaguar uh in the impossibles or or a jazz master which is kind of jaguars are short scale guitars uh which kurt can pull off because he's like whatever five foot two uh i'm six foot three so i would have needed to play a jazz master probably i never had any of those while i was playing now that's like exclusively what i make as guitars i make jazz masters and then i make another thing which is called a Jagstang done right. So mm. Kurt Cobain worked with Fender to make a signature series back when he was still alive. And he put together these photographs of a Jaguar and a Mustang and kind of, you know, delivered it to Fender. In my opinion, whoever got that at Fender was uh, maybe not super happy with the assignment because what they basically did is they took the picture that he gave them. They 
traced that outline and then they made that guitar. <laughs> and when you have a collage of like three different, you know, four different pictures put together and then you just make that guitar, it doesn't actually look all that great. So like the actual Jagstang that came out from Fender in the, in the 90s is this sort of like weird shape. Some people really love it. I, I could never really connect with it. Fast forward a little bit later, uh, this guy, Paul Roney, he made what's called a Jagstang done right. And what it is, is it's an actual combination of a Jaguar and a Mustang shape into a new form factor uh, that I really love. And so I've made, I've made like four or five of the Jagstang done right uh, guitars, really just sort of like chasing this whole Kurt right. Cobain uh, <laughs> guitar fetish that, that all started with this, this first Jaguar. You know, it's, it's funny too, cause and I had to catch myself in actually not being knowledgeable enough when I was like, I, the first clip where he's playing a Stratocaster, I was like, mm. oh, he played Stratocasters? Because yeah. in my mind, he's always playing this guitar, right? He's either yeah. playing a Mustang or he's playing the, the Jaguar or whatever, right? So yeah. it was funny because when I saw the Stratocaster, I was like, oh, that seems kind of square for him, you know? And then it's mm -hmm. like, and then you go to the MTV clips and you're like, yeah. oh, he actually played it all the time, you know? Right, right. Um, but that is for sure. This he makes this guitar iconic. Right? Well, I think Fender was also just sending him I'm sure. gear every week because they destroyed shit every single I week. I have comments about that <laughs> too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, well, yeah, we'll get into that. Also, yeah. too, Chris, Chris is is playing an, a, like an explorer shaped bass or whatever, something like that, kind of close to that. Um, and then I picture him playing the ripper bass that he'll eventually hit himself in the face with um or, or whatever i think that's is that a ripper yeah, or yeah. something like that yeah um and also dave's drums are small in this yeah well they get they do get they get bigger they get and bigger exp exponentially bigger over the course yeah. of these clips yeah. yeah what we're gonna do now is we're gonna go forward just like two months which is crazy to think about Basically, you know, what they describe in the book, between September 24th and Christmas, Nevermind just had a life of its own. By this point, it was selling 300,000 copies a week, Whew, so including 373,250 in the last week of December. So basically, like the Christmas rush of all these kids getting money and going out and buying Nevermind. Um, so many Christmas records. week of 1991. Um, and that was when Nirvana unseated Michael Jackson at number one in the Billboard 200 was, was that week, basically Christmas of 1991. And we are going to move forward to January 10th, 1992. And what we're going to do here is we're gonna, we are going to talk about back-to-back -back clips. We're going to talk about January 10th, and we're going to talk about January 11th. Because um, it's actually a very special moment, which is basically when Nevermind goes number one. They are the biggest band in America, and they go to New York, and they're filming on January 10th, so that Friday, at the MTV Studios. And Roy, I'm really glad you recommended this, because it's a little different for us, obviously, because usually on the show, we're not talking about... Um, whole performances or whole sets of music. We're talking about usually clips of music or a song or a performance or two songs, right? For this, though, they're going and they're going to be shown as live one-offs on air on MTV. So it's just like they're going, they're going to perform all these songs, and then MTV on 120 Minutes or other sort of different programming that they have, they'll show a, you know, a little live clip of this performance on a song-by-song -song basis. And after eight, year, eight years after Kurt's death, MTV releases the whole performance in its entirety, and you can watch the whole thing that you know, we did this week um, with the sound checks and all yeah. of that stuff. It was eight years ago this week that Kurt Cobain died, and in honor of his memory and contribution to rock, you're about to see something never shown on MTV in its entirety. 
Now, back on Friday, January 10th, 1992, the band had a day off from rehearsals for their appearance on Saturday Night Live, and MTV asked the band to come by the studio to record some live performances to air as videos. Now, some of these performances have aired before, but this is the first time that you will get to see it in its entirety. Here it is, Nirvana Unseen. So there's this awesome quote, and I guess well, this is also the point we need to talk about now, where Kurt, it's an insane sort of synchronous moment of they're the biggest band in the world, and now Kurt is just a full-on heroin addict. Yep. And, and this is sort of these two things happen at the exact same time, which probably is not a coincidence in his life. No. Um, and there's this quote from Gold Mountain, which I think is Nirvana's PR team or p- touring promo team. I can't remember what it was. Gold Mountain. This guy, Dave Goldberg, and he says, talking about this performance at the MTV studios, he says, Kurt's just wiped out and he looks terrible. And he's watching the dailies of the performance. He says, I want to see it back. So they play back about 15 different takes of four or five songs from this performance. He just sat there and said, that's no good. That one's no good. That one you can put in the year of rock, but I don't want it on it regularly on MTV. After a week, I only want this one repeated. He could barely walk across the room, but they were all exactly the right decisions. And when it comes to the professional product of what Nirvana is, he makes all of those decisions and makes them from a place of tremendous consciousness. So he's there at these, and he's like watching the takes and dailies of this MTV studio performance, analyzing which ones goes where, what you run it when, right? And he's just fucked up on heroin the entire time and still this incredible savant to the point where not only is he making these music and performance, Performing it, he's running the business of, right. of Nirvana. I just couldn't. It was stunning to read, you know. Yeah, it's it's kind of hard to understand how they're able to pull off what they do in their time while he's inactive, full blown addiction. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, there's got to be so many people keeping this train on the tracks. Yeah, and just reading that stuff and come as you are, just like all of the passive aggressive denial that goes on with the band around Kurt's addiction and yeah. like Chris and Dave, like being afraid to confront Kurt about it and not yeah. wanting to talk about it. And, you know, Kurt basically saying, I can't, I have you know, all this horrible stomach pain and I can't perform without it. And like, you know, this is my way of keeping alive. And obviously after he dies, Courtney basically says we shouldn't have got him off heroin. And that's, you know, there's all that stuff she talks about, which is kind of fucked up. Um, but yeah, I, Rory, I want to bring you in here because you recommended that you wanted to do this one specifically, um, this performance specifically, yeah. this era of Kurt specifically. And so this did this connect with you on MTV, these performances as a, a 17-year-old or 16-year-old at the time? A, a thousand percent. They, you know, they, they advertised quite a bit that they were going to show some of it. And I think they only at the time maybe showed one or two songs and, you know, kind of spread it out. Uh, uh, so I, I didn't enjoy it in the form that you can see it now where it's kind of all together, but, uh, yeah, with bated breath, because, you know, we, we watched the, uh, the UK television debut Nirvana had not been on TV. They hadn't done Saturday night live yet. And MTV, you know, had this, this sort of like, would you like to know what it's like to see Nirvana live, Rory Phillips? Uh, journal, uh, yes, please. I would very much like to see that. And and just beyond that too, it was stylistically like one of the peaks of the band's look. Like for me, the the red hair Kurt Cobain uh, yeah. from like the Come As You Are video, and from from this with like the purple streaks in it. Uh, just you know. It, he's so dreamy. <laughs> so, <laughs> totally. Uh, uh, it, it, I just, it, yeah, it, this brings back like a, a total flood of nostalgia. Um, 
I think this is still, they're still trying to get their feet underneath them. I, I don't know who was running sound on this. Actually, I, I probably do because what happens whenever you do these sorts of gigs is they, the sound uh, control is all union guys. Uh, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're contractually bound to be like the people who are running the sound. So you end up with this, like, you know, like a 65 year old guy trying to mix uh, a band like Nirvana. I don't know for a fact that that's what happened here, but that's, that's my guess because like at certain points, just like the snare pops out of the mix, like crazy loud. And like, so it's not coming together. It, it sort of fits because they were so kind of sloppy at this point and, and maybe gives you a feel for it. But I mean, if you were in that room, I can only imagine what the energy was like. Yeah. That was the, one of my big notes. I was just like, can you imagine being in this fucking room January 1992 and like this moment is, but it is kind of funny how like, I don't know if they just get notes as a crowd, but there are early on, at least the audience is kind of like standing still and not doing right. much. And then at a certain point, I think probably around, aneurysm they start mm-hmm. really getting into it right. um but yeah like drain you in school this is the two clips we're gonna watch like live today because we're not we can't watch the whole set obviously the audience is just kind of like standing around <laughs> they're not doing yeah. much um and you're like how are you watching school right now and not losing your absolute minds uh maybe we'll, <laughs> we're gonna talk about school in a second because that's well, one i really wanted to talk about well but, this yeah. is i mean this is probably where you see the shift in uh, you know, the word, you had actual, clearly, punks and Nirvana fans right, doing their right, thing. Right. And they've already come to this point where MTV's like, all right, get some prop people up in the back, you know? Um, in which case, they probably already felt a shift where they're like, oh, man, this is yeah. already being taken from us and right. turned into something else. Right, yeah, true. Um, the only other note I had was, and it's something I didn't really think about until this exercise this week, Dave's like backing vocals so good. They're so good and like so important to all oh of these God. performances. I can't. And it's like something yeah. like, and even you read the book, you read Come As You Are, and like you know, Kurt like doesn't even fucking talk about Dave singing or like it's just such an afterthought in the history of Nirvana. It shouldn't be. And it's like man, like <laughs> yeah. God. There's so many performances we watched for this where it's like Dave sounds great and he's also <laughs> the best drummer in the world at the same time. Yeah, and it's just. I don't know. It just added, seemed like it added such an important element to their live performance in a way I hadn't really thought about. Have y'all heard the the song Marigold? Yeah. That's, I mean, that was the, the turning point for me. It was a B-side on the Heart Shape Box CD single. Mm. It came out and it was the first song where they let uh, Dave sing lead. And that that was when it crystallized for me. Like, oh, actually, Dave is a really good singer. And then later finding out that he did the, the high... Uh, uh, harmonies in in bloom uh right like super crazy high stuff uh yeah i mean it, it, like all the evidence all the clues were there you know yeah. for the foo fighters, that the foo fighters were a, a a possibility uh but i still don't think anyone would have would have imagined it at this point yeah well, there's all these stories too about them being like they would, Dave would write a demo or something, and, and Kurt would be like, "This sucks, Dave. Fuck you!" <laughs> yeah. Like, like he just like was so unencouraging to Dave Kroll this entire time. Right. It's like, yeah. and it's like you could not like you could not see this guy as one of the most talented musicians in the world. Like, obviously, you yeah. know. And I mean, whatever you think about Foo Fighters, I mean, come on. Like, well, he also says when he found him is you know we got the best drum in the world, right? So no, yeah, no, yeah. he did pump him up in different ways. But I'm just yeah. saying when you read about the internal stuff, and Dave sure. would come in with a chord progression or something, and Kurt be like, "This is unserious bullshit, Dave." I'm just like, well, Kurt. and I think Dave and Courtney not getting along. Yes. Probably. 
There's all yeah. these stories about Dave and Courtney fighting, right? That makes yeah. right. That was probably a big part of it. Um, yeah, but now we're watching School, which is the second one they do. So good. And man, this performance just rips. It's probably like the best of like Kurt's voice today. But I do. This is the opportunity. Like Rory, what are your contemporaneous thoughts on um on like Bleach these days? Like, how does it still play for you? So I I love Bleach. I mean, it just sounds like a different band. Like like you put it, it, watching this whole set and having them do school and uh, uh, you know amongst these like newer songs. For me, I think there's sort of a pre and post Vaseline's Nirvana uh, more even more so than like uh, the Nevermind thing. It's like when Kurt discovered the Vaseline's and they started doing Molly's Lips and Jesus Don't Want Me for a Sunbeam and and you know covering those songs, the the whole sort of like pop sensibility clicked and then all of the songs are different after that and they and they you know end up putting out Nevermind. Uh, so it's just really strange to like it, it's it's cool it's and also i think it's super you can tell that this was a super effective song live for them and super effective amongst the sort of like metal punk grunge you know proto grunge scene that they were a part of and, and coming out of like you totally get it uh, but it does it, it does just feel like a totally totally different thing when i first got bleach i i you know I hate to say it, uh, but I listened to it once and I was kind of like, eh, maybe not for me. Yeah, maybe I think I a lot of people out. have that experience. Yeah. So, yeah. so if you listen to Nevermind first, you know, it takes yeah. a while. And then I eventually started listening to it more. And then what it became my favorite thing to do was listen to Bleach and then harmonize uh, the vocals because there's no harmonies on Bleach. <laughs> uh, so Did you have a so favorite song to do that on? <laughs> uh, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um I, I school it was probably a really good one, but you're in high school again. Like you can harmonize that really, yeah. you know. All right, easily. we've got that queued yeah. up. So Rory, if you get ready, um, <laughs> school again. Um, <laughs> See, perfect. Yeah, I, we'll fix uh, it in post. We'll fix yeah, it yeah, in yeah. post. It's fine. Awesome. Um, yeah, and so that you know, as someone who is learning how to play guitar and trying to figure out how to write songs and learning how to put harmonies on the songs that I was writing, it was a very useful tool for me to to have bleach for that. Well, it's definitely, I think my, and I, this goes to what you were saying, my, the past week or so when I re-listened to bleach again, it was like, oh, the poppy songs are good. And the ones that are more like grunge sound workouts, you know, like what can, can we, does this sound sludgy? Does this sound punky? Yeah. They don't come across nearly as well, right? And that's mm-hmm. what it is. He hasn't found the mix of that. Right. Well, so like, and we talked about this. We were texting about this. Like, Chad is just very inconsistent on that record. Yeah. Like, sometimes mm. it works. There are other a couple of songs where actually the production using, harms. They're using his, mixes from yeah. another demo of a previous drummer. I, I right. read like the it just that whole the drums on that album are very inconsistent. Yeah, um, both the production and the performance. I was gonna say yeah. Sometimes sometimes it's the performance, and sometimes it really is the production on that record. And yeah, it's not always easy to tell what's what. Over right, like. Uh, yeah, they, they, Dale Crover's they, on some of it. Yeah, Dale Crover. There are two of them. They took demos from Dale Crover and actually just used them in on Bleach and yeah. took out Chad's performances because they like, disliked them so much. Right. You know. So I guess is this a good moment to kind of talk about before we go into the first SNL performance? I guess this is a good moment to talk about like Nevermind, which we haven't really done in full yet. Like Rory, how for Nevermind when it first came out. 
were you, were you in this moment of like you're talking about you're ruining punk music you know Rory Phillips is ruining punk music by being a Nirvana fan was like were there moments of Nevermind even back then where you're like this is kind of really produced and sounds like a big rock record and that's not what punk is to me or I mean like were there thoughts about that because you listen to their record now and it's like compared to Bleach especially and you're like oh my god this production is a whole other yeah. world of of rock music you know no, because I didn't have that point of reference. Like I wasn't listening to independent music yet. So I didn't understand that there was like a lo-fi quality to the stuff that was right. cooler and that not everybody knew about and that wasn't on MTV. Like I, I just didn't, I, I hadn't made that connection yet. Um, and so listening to it, I mean, it sounded pretty raw to me, you know, mm. even though later I would sort of recognize the production style as being a little more slick. I, I think it gets too much shit. You know, Kurt did a lot of work to shit on the production of Nevermind after it came out, you know, like he, the, the sort of like, I wish it hadn't sold millions of copies. I, I wish I could play it from a boom box into a microphone and re-release it because this, you know, now it sounds too slick. Right. There's, it, a lot of of what makes Nevermind amazing is the uh, the sound room drums going through a Neve, having fucking Dave Grawl play them. Yeah, that, was, that <laughs> uh, helped in the first place. Like, like that drum sound is not slick. No, uh, like it it does not sound. You know, I don't know what I would think of as like slick drums. Uh, you know, maybe like like new metal or something, but like it's just very, very well captured on a super good uh, uh, console with an amazing drummer. And to me, that's the biggest foundational piece that makes it sound not like Bleach and and not like the other sort of like indie records. But, like the drum sounds in particular. Yeah, yeah. And just how uh, amazing the drums sound. The, the guitar is like, you could say it's slick because it's got, you know, Andy put a bunch of uh, chorus and stuff. And like I mentioned earlier, put flanger on the bass and like, yeah, like, but I, to my ear, all that stuff is still relatively subtle. It's not, you know, there's maybe some some moments where it really pokes out, but it's all in service of the music. And and I don't, so I don't subscribe to the idea that like, you know, I've, I've now at this point, everything has come out. So I remember back then being like, Oh man, I, I wish I could hear Butch Vig's original mix of this because right. you know, we'll have all that. on. We'll have the, all the in utero stuff, obviously too, yeah. which became its own beast of a production battle. Right. So. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and so, but uh, you know, same sort of deal. I, I like the Scott lit mixes. <laughs> like Scott lit did a really good <laughs> job mixing heart shaped box. I'm sorry he did. Uh, but uh, yeah, like just the, now that I've heard the Butch Big Mix, it's like, oh, this is cool. Yeah, it's more raw. It doesn't have the the effects on it that, that it did. It's not, you know, just demonstrably better, uh, which is the way that Kurt, Kurt Cobain kind of like framed it was that like Nevermind would be a better record if it didn't have this extra layer of gloss on top of it. I respectfully disagree. I, I think it sounds fantastic. And I... I yeah. Every other sort of mix and version of it that I've heard has been interesting, but I, I don't think it's been better. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a similar thing where it's like, I remember, I think ooh, maybe five years ago, I did like, I'm going to listen to Nevermind for the first time in a long time. 
and 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 this week I kind of re- you know for the most part I agree it just sounds good like also compared to what things sound like now like there it isn't squashed by digital compression and things like that where it it just sounds more real now to us in the digital world mm. I think um but also you know there's occasional times where I'm like okay the the vocals are really high and the guitars feel like they're everything feels very separate you know which is on purpose right and then sometimes I just kind of wish it was all a little more bled together which you totally get within utero right well that was all beanies to an extreme degree you know um so that's the only time where I can kind of notice what he's talking about but for me it's like it doesn't yeah take away well it's just uh, Kurt was just uh, like Rory reference he was just obsessed with I'm embarrassed by how Nevermind sounds. Like, yeah, I'm ashamed of, you know, it sounds like a Motley Crue record. That's a quote that he has in right. the book. It sounds more like a Motley Crue record than a punk record. And it's like, calm, calm down. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, it I understand. It does not sound like Bob Rock. No. Yeah, no, it no, really doesn't. It, it doesn't. Um, but I still, like you said, it, it's all more about Kurt's own weird shit with success and fame and whatever, you know. Also, Holy shit, there are so many good songs on this record. Like, I know. Like, I couldn't believe re-listening to it. It's just like, <laughs> oh my God, it's just a non-stop. You remember every single song. Yeah. You remember every single line. It's just one of those, it's one of those records. Yep. And and the drum parts are as memorable as like vocals. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. um, And we haven't even talked a lot about Chris today, but also very important. Yeah. yeah. Very important across the board. And I think we'll have moments to talk about him and these these songs coming up. Um, okay. Well, that's a good setup for we're moving a day forward in time, which is ridiculous. Uh, January 11th, 1992. They're on Saturday Night Live, the very famous first appearance of Nirvana on Saturday Night Live. We're going to talk about it. Hosted by Rob Morrow from Northern Exposure. Just one of those things like, okay, Rob Murrow's hosting the Nirvana show. Like, right. sure. You texted me, Alex, you're like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, uh, I didn't know. So. Uh, Rory, Northern Exposure fan? You ever watched yeah, that? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I remember watching it. Um, remember. Like a little yeah. before our time. I just remember Rob Murrow from Quiz Show, the movie Quiz Show. He plays like uh, the sure. lawyer in, in Quiz mm-hmm. Show, um, or the investigator in Quiz Show. Um, but yeah, let, let's start the clip. And so uh, January 11th, 1992. Gentlemen, Nirvana. <laughs> the first thing that I noticed about this is Chris's ponytail. Yes, and I feel I feel like that is. Uh, have you ever seen the Sylvester Stallone movie Over the Top about arm wrestling? <laughs> yeah, yes. the whole thing where he's ha- where he like switches his hat from the front to the back, and that's a switch, and he switches it on. I feel like for Chris, the ponytail is is the thing where it's like, okay, SNL is serious. Like yesterday, we we shot some stuff for MTV. Right. I, I you know whatever. Who cares? I'm putting my hair in a ponytail so I can see my fingers and make sure that I don't fuck up on national TV yes. for Saturday Night Live. Like, I feel like they were actually taking this much more seriously. That is such a good, that's exactly how I felt watching it. Yes. Like, they look like they want to, they want to nail this. Yeah, they were like, oh, let's not fuck around. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, except on and that's, the end of Territorial Pistons. Sure, but I also, my immediately I was like, okay, they sound way better. Like performance wise, and the fact I just didn't even click to me that it was the next day. Yeah, well, um, this is definitely the so. We, I mean, technically, we've watched three smells like Teen Spirit performances this week for right. the show. The first clip they do it in MTV Studios, and they do it today. This is definitely the best performance. Yes, we watched of of the three. Um, I don't know if it's also just the mix, like 
that yeah. the part during the hello part, like Kurt's guitar sounds so good during the hello, like yeah. wall of sound part on yeah. this one. Um, I also just need to give a shout out to the SNL stage on this one. This is like that two year period where they have like the industrial fan stage, <laughs> yeah. which is just like the perfect moment for like Nirvana and grunge. Uh, it just looks so cool with Nirvana up there on this like industrial yeah. like sound stage thing. This makes me think of, they talk about it a lot in how did this get made? The podcast where like, in 90s movies, you'll get a guy who lives in a warehouse, and the, <laughs> it will look like this, where it's like, why is there an industrial fan in this guy's house, you know? <laughs> uh, Just sparks flying everywhere yeah, like for Michael, no reason. You know, Michael Gibson, like... <laughs> another, another, yeah, like Cobra, another Sly Stallone um, classic. Yeah, but Dave has the really deep rack tom here. My God, that rack tom is massive. Look at that. Thing. Yeah, is he is he racking a floor tom? That's what is I think it is, but it has, is but it has... So deep. Yeah, it must be custom because it has like a way for you to mount it, right? Yeah, it's got the hardware, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, but I just, when I think I now, for no reason, have a 26-inch bass drum and an 18-inch floor tom for no reason, it doesn't help me play better, (laughs) but I like like seeing someone sitting behind big drums, and I think it's because of Dave Grohl. Yeah, Uh, that, I didn't even realize, that tom is massive. Yeah. Jesus Christ, I did not even pick up And they're not, it's not. Yeah, a little I, much. Yeah, it, uh, of course it's much. <laughs> way too much. Um, I also noticed, too, that he always plays with his sticks flipped around. Yeah, um, the butt end. The yeah. butt end. Uh, wow. Yeah. The Bonham thing, right? Yeah. Yes. And, I, yeah. and I've tried. And John Bonham was like his hero. And I try that. I've tried that before, and I just don't understand. Like, it, it's like how... This is one of those things where his skill is so high that he's like, I can do these things that are... That are not going to help me, mm-hmm. but it. But well, no, but I mean, it helps him in that <laughs> when you play with the butt end like he does, it gives that really thick, loud, loud yeah. forceful thing. I mean, I've seen drummers drummers do this. I mean, maybe because of Dave Grohl, I don't know. But yeah, people do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I can understand, especially if you're playing something faster, like the next clip. Right. Um, it's tough. Well, it's, it's like it's you tough. Know, like the muscles to do that. Are, yeah, I was going to say easy. your double stroke rolls are not going to come off as easy with that. Though. Right. 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 Um, and listen to me, out. these double stroke rolls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what a fucking, you're a drummer. What a fucking Lean nerd. into it, Alex. You, have, you, you know, you, you've studied. N- oh my god, uh, Rory, I hate go that for I it. Sorry, it. I was going to say a quick shout out to Music Videos 4K, uh, yeah. who uh, have been doing a lot of like cleaning up of these old clips, and that's the one that we're watching right now on YouTube. Uh, I don't know that I re- realized during the original uh, broadcast that Dave is in a plexiglass cage. So they've like, oh, I just like, see that now. I just noticed it. Uh, cage around him uh, to try and you know <laughs> contain some of Dave yeah. Roll. You know, good good fucking luck. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I'd never noticed that until watching it this time around. I just uh, noticed it. Yeah, and it, it really makes the end of Terry Chiller Pissings make a lot more sense, where Dave is kind of just like hanging out around his drums and like throwing things like. Towards the front of the stage. Oh, yeah. I never got it until being able to see it cleaned up like this. Now I can tell exactly what was what was happening. Yeah, it was like an optical illusion, Rory. Like I didn't see that until you pointed <laughs> really it out. You didn't, yeah. Like, but now you now I can definitely see. And you're right, it does explain the way we will, we're about to watch it, but the way he throws his bass drum and rack tom at the end of territorial pissings. And it's he's, like he's throwing it over a fence. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to territorial pissings here and 
I wanted to say this off the top. Do you think Chris like re- really regretted singing the intro to Territorial Pistons like this? Because he has to on do it record, every- and he has to do it every time <laughs> they perform it. Yeah, in no, that I kind of funny voice, it. he's like, "I have to do this shit again because I just did it exactly uh, like that on Nevermind." Um, take it from me: when you finally find the place to showcase the bass player being on mic. He loves it. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> they don't have to. He's probably signing up for it. You yeah, know? maybe you're right. But it's just so, so funny because he has to do it in that same cadence. Yeah. Every time he... And he nails it. Oh, he's, people know. <laughs> he nails it every time. Um, oh, he switched to a strat uh, for yeah. territorial things, yep. which uh, makes sense. So clearly he has the iconic Jaguar for whenever he wants to to look cool. And then <laughs> right. he just has a never-ending supply of strats that someone is putting new necks on to uh that oh that's interesting yeah. yeah 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 yeah. like he's using it for this because he's gonna break his guitar at the end yeah right. that was the thing i said like fender was sending them like yeah. guitars every single week and he was just fucking he didn't i was wondering that because yeah. i was like it's not a, it's not a different tuning and it's you know it's like why switch guitars but that makes sense yeah well and, and the great thing about fenders right is that they're bolt-on neck and and they're they're super modular uh and so his guitar tech could just like take whatever wasn't completely destroyed <laughs> and put it back together. Place, yeah. you know, usually it's the neck that gets broken, right? Like that's, it. but necks you can just buy a, a fender neck and just sw- slap a new one on, uh, and, and not miss a beat. And so that that was a, a big part of the process with them destroying, yeah, the guitars on on stage. Um, so Dave, the Melvin shirt. Yep, he's got a Melvin shirt. Um, and then we got the L seven. So it's like, you know. The Melvin's A, of course, you know, um, the godfathers of Nirvana, basically. Yeah, yeah the They've like hung out buddies, with them in their yeah. band practice space when Kurt was like 15 right. or whatever. You know? um, L7, Contemporaries, of course, and then Flipper just... Which Chris will go on to play bass in Flipper. I know, which is so interesting to me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I feel like I couldn't tell in the last clip, but was Dave wearing a Rocket from the Crypt shirt? In the 120 minute shirt, yeah, clip? it says know. rock something, and I was like, "Is that Rocket from the Crypt?" Because they would have been around, but I don't know. Um, anyways, yeah, yeah. So now they're destroying the stage. I don't know if you caught it, but Dave Dave tries to throw his uh, floor tom the first time and hits the plexiglass. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then Chris throws the symbol right back, back right. at Dave. Dave yeah. smoking a cigarette on stage. Yes, at the, the now end. we're at the, the the closing credits, the classic SNL closing credits. You know, thank you, good night, everybody. And Dave is right next to Murrow smoking a cigarette on stage. And then right here, Chris and Dave make out. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so funny. Kurt is standing there. He has this like exchange: Julia, Sweetie, and Nirvana hugging. This is the moment <laughs> we get in this time capsule. And then it's and the, the connection to Weird Al Yankovic. Julia, Sweetie that's does. How, that's how weird. That's how Weird Al, uh, or not Julia Sweeney. Um, her uh uh oh victoria jackson thank you victoria jackson uh victoria jackson was in uhf with weird al yankovic and Uh. that's how weird al yankovic got connected with kurt cobain to be able to ask them if he could do smells like nirvana oh wow and now victoria (laughs) jackson's like a kind of piece of shit weirdo i think yeah she is um (laughs) she's like i think she's like a weird conservative true story yeah Yeah. like like anti-vax or something yeah but yeah so there's it's just i love this moment here there's the credits rolling Kurt is standing off by himself, kind of. Yeah. It just like hit me the weirdest way to see Kurt Cobain standing on stage by himself watching all these people hug, and you're like, oh, that's Kurt Cobain, and he's feeling awkward and weird. And yeah. like it just it, <laughs> it made me feel like emotional and like yeah. I-, I can't even describe it. And then he shakes hands with Chris Farley. 
this moment, Chris Farley and Kurt are shaking hands at like nine minutes. He just minutes. looks like a statue. Like he just like, Ugh. oh my god, Ugh. man! Like that moment of Chris Farley and Kurt Cobain shaking hands, and it's like, yeah, oh my, I can't even. It's just fucking. It's hard for me. Like it's fucking. Crazy. It's strange that those two people existed at the same time because in my mind they're in such separate worlds. But like, yeah. oh yeah, they're contemporaries, right? Yeah, and I mean, same age probably. Chris wouldn't live much longer. I think than Kurt. I mean, it was yeah. only a few years, I think. Um, but yeah, just, you know, that moment of them making out on stage and, um, you know, Chris is just so tall and towering over everybody in the SNL cast. I mean, it's just an incredible, an incredible little time capsule of performance. I understand why it became the thing yeah. it did. You know what I mean? I also have to give credit to the line of just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you, which gets me every time. And right? also it's that like, moment <laughs> when he sings it, it's that quiet part and then the yeah. chorus pumps back in. I, like That is things. such a good line and it, yeah. You know the origin yeah. of that line? I don't. It's from Catch-22. Oh. Uh, Kurt, like, like Kurt says that that's where he sourced it from. Oh, uh, okay. And then, yeah. you know, following this, just a couple things from Come As You Are, they, they interview Grohl um, it basically talks about how like the pain at this point had made him suicidal and he you know is doing heroin because of all this horrible stomach pain that he's having. And Dave Grohl is interviewed and he says, you know, although Kurt had been doing heroin for over a month, even his closest associates hadn't noticed it until now. And Grohl says, I didn't realize he was getting fucked up until SNL just because I'm stupid and I couldn't pick out something like that. I'm naive and didn't want to believe it. Uh, and then he says, uh, talking about Courtney and Kurt, he says, thank thank God those two didn't do cocaine because they'd be the biggest fucking assholes in the world. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, I, mean, he, I mean, maybe he could have bounced him out a little bit. Cocaine, um, no los dos, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, right. Um, and then before we, we get, I mean, obviously now what we're going to do is we're going to jump to September of 92. So I think the biggest thing that happens here, and I do want to hear from Rora on this because I, I remember this, but like, it didn't really stick with me in my mind until I read the book the past couple of weeks, which is this Vanity Fair article that comes out mm-hmm. about Courtney Love and, and Kurt. And it basically just talks about, you know, Courtney, Courtney talks about doing heroin while she's pregnant um, and all this stuff around, you know, when they're going to get married, Chris and his wife like boycott the wedding and Kurt and Courtney says, you can't come to our wedding. It's like their best friend and the bassist in the band. They're not going to go to this wedding and all this shit. She says, um, he'll, uh, you know, all this stuff comes out or in the Vanity Fair article and it becomes like this thing that defines Kurt for like the rest of his career in a lot yeah. of ways, like the way he relates to his fans and the media is this single article that, from what I understood, just kind of like fucked with their lives in a very like intense way, in a way that I just didn't remember, you know? Um, But Roy, do you remember like when this article dropped and the whole, the whole thing around it culturally or? I I was, I was Kurt pilled. uh, And so I was (laughs) team. Kurt actually doesn't have a heroin problem. It's the media that's, that's, you know, cooking all this stuff up. Cause I wanted to believe him, you know, like, like I'm, I'm team Kurt and he would keep saying things like, uh, I remember there being a quote that like, Oh, I just, you know, I shaved for that photo shoot. And so I, I had a weird look and people thought that I was on drugs and, right. and, you know, like, like that was the, there were always, there was always sort of like a, an explanation or, or, you know, some way that they were saying that things were being twisted around. I never read the Vanity, Vanity Fair article. I just read all the articles in rebuttal to the Vanity Fair article uh, for that reason. Um, I remember Out Magazine had a, a Kurt Cobain uh, a thing that I, that I read and uh, Monk Magazine, which was like this little uh, 
Washington specific magazine that, that Kurt Cobain decided to be in. So, yeah. So I, I, I do remember like there was a, a lot of sort of outrage and, um, there was a 17 magazine article that said, uh, things are looking really Sid and Nancy, uh, for them, uh, in a way that I think they didn't really understand what they were saying by saying that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, unfortunately that was, that did seem to be the way that, uh, yeah. you know, things were kind of going with it, within it on the backside. Unfortunately prescient. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, and then, so there's quote in fucking comes you are from Kurt. He says, they're talking about the Vanity Fair article and he's talking about Hirschberg who writes the article. He says, I just decided, fuck this. I don't want to be in a band anymore. It just isn't worth it. I want to kill her referring to Hirschberg. As soon as I get out of this fucking hospital, because it's the point he's in rehab, he's talking to Azarad in rehab about the Vanity Fair article. He says, as soon as I get out of this fucking hospital, I'm going to kill this woman with my bare hands. I'm going to stab her to death. First, I'm going to take her dog and slit its guts out in front of her and then shit all over her and stab her to death. This is the quote it comes as you are. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting in re- And look, he's just being sensational and he's in rehab and he's all fucking... But still, it's like, Jesus, you read this shit from Kurt in this moment and you're like, him and Courtney just had so much anger and obsession and like, obviously it it makes you understand, uh, you know, so much about him and their relationship and why this doesn't work out. But it's also just like, and so this is the other point. The next day, so he talks about him, Kurt Kurt and Courtney being suicidal after this curse in the summer of of whatever, 92. Um, And... One night they take a gun out together. They're thinking about killing themselves. They don't do it. The next day they fly out to Reading for the Reading Festival and perform. Yeah. Wow. And like that is one of the all-time great Nirvana performances. This, yeah. is, this is what I'm saying. It's so hard to wrap my mind around the two currents at, at once. You know? Like being huge and, and displaying these awesome performances and writing this great music, but also being so actively addicted to heroin, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, also, just clearly someone who was struggling with mental illness and has from a young age in terrible ways, right? And, you know, so these things where he says these crazy things, it's like, okay, yeah, but he's he's 25, he's 26. Yeah. He's, you know, there's so much happening. Like, he's addicted to drugs. He's coming off of drugs. The biggest rock star in the world. He's literally getting interviewed in rehab when he's detoxing. Like, that's no that's no joke. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Most people who are in that state don't have someone being like, can you give me this, like, really serious uh, yeah, quote I, about your actually life? It's actually a good point. Like, it must, I mean, him, I, and, him and Azarad's relationship obviously were really close to the point they would allow that, but it's still like, what the, f- why are you fucking doing that? Dude, it's like, it's like, back off, you know? Like, yeah. um, so, I, I, when I hear all these you know, things now that he says or did, I'm just like, yeah. Mm. (laughs) Like, you know, you think, yeah. I I, want to go on the record as saying, I I don't think it was Courtney Love's fault. I think that there's a sort of like a sexist uh, thread that runs through the the sort of Yoko Ono, Courtney Love sort of vilification of, uh, you know, the, the associated uh, women in some of these rock stars lives. And, and I, I, I'm just, I'm not on that, side of it i'm I'm also not team conspiracy theory uh around uh, uh kurt's passing yeah uh, i actually and, forgot to mention this i i remember so, being like 12 and i definitely bought one of those like bullshit fucked up books that was like did courtney love like murder kurt cobain uh, no. <laughs> oh no there was like a mark there was a market for uh, those books yeah, yeah. 
And like, oh, I definitely absolutely. did buy because I was, you know, when, when I was 12, maybe I was a little bit older. And I was buying everything Nirvana and I wanted to read everything about Kurt Cobain. I definitely read one of those fucking bullshit books that th- had this conspiracy theory that, that Courtney Love had him murdered. You know, like, it was out there to buy in the book markets. You know, it's like, oh my God. Wouldn't that make you feel better about everything? Wouldn't it make you, uh, <laughs> you know, feel relieved if yeah. you knew that? This amazing artist that you really love didn't want to kill themselves. He was actually murdered by someone. Right, else. that's what. He, right, exactly. exactly. That is plagued into plagued that, on that. Right, it's just plaguing on that that emotion. It's super yeah. fucked up. Um, okay, so th- that this basically that's sort of the story of what happens here in the months in between what we're going to watch now, yeah. which is September 9th, nineteen ninety two, and they're on the MTV Video Music Awards, and they're going to perform Lithium, the song, the song Lithium, and. I'm just going to start the clip um, because there's a lot of story and a lot of backstory here. Did people watch, Rory, did you get a chance to watch this version of the clip that I sent that has like the intro stuff? Yeah, hundred okay. percent. And I got to say, there is nothing more nineties than Tabitha Soren wearing a choker. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Totally. It opens up. The fashion police. Yeah. My fashion doctor thing that I do here. Tabitha looks very nineties. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um, totally epic. But look. even before this interview, just setting this clip up. They have this whole fight with Guns N' Roses yeah, backstage yeah. before this. Courtney yeah. goes up to Axel and says, will you be the godfather of our child? Axel yeah. Rose shouts back at Courtney Love. You, oh, no, at Kurt. He says, you shut your bitch up or I'm taking you down to the pavement. Yeah. That's what Axel says to Kurt Cobain. It's like, cool, dude. People are what was, re- yeah. Right. I remember this as being like a, a schism. Like I could not like Guns N' Roses right. because of this. Like at that time, it was like all of a sudden there's this divide. Even though I, you know, liked Guns N' Roses and Metallica to like varying degrees before then, this all of a sudden felt like okay, no, now and not to drag Metallica in it unnecessarily, but like <laughs> just that that sort of like you know dude rock yeah. stuff. Like oh, now that's that's actually uh, a, a different team, and we don't we are actually playing against that team. We're on Team Nirvana uh, uh, and Team you know Seattle, uh, and and just feeling like you couldn't like both, which is funny because I I think nowadays looking at like the Foo Fighters and, and da- where Dave Grawl ended up going, you can tell like he clearly loves this butt rock stuff. Yeah. Like, right. You know, he must have liked Guns N' Roses to some extent before getting into this. Yeah. Uh, oh, no doubt. I mean, Led Zeppelin was his whole, you know what I mean? So if you love Led yeah, Zeppelin, right. the natural progression for a lot of people was Zeppelin into Guns N' Roses. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, I think for, it's, it's interesting that he happened, Dave just happened to be from DC, right? So he ended up in Scream and like Discord associated, right? So like, if he had been somewhere else in the world, would that have gone differently? Who knows? Yeah. Right? But even that fight backstage with Guns N' Roses, they talk about in the book, that almost Chris and Bu- and Duff, the bassist, Duff, yeah, yeah, yeah. they almost get in a fight. Which is funny. And it was just funny. So they all get a matchup. Kurt was going to fight Axel <laughs> and, and Duff, Slash Duff at, the same, at the same time. or What? Duff is from Seattle. And he was in the farts. And, like He was in like like punk bands. Yeah. yeah, he maybe was in the fastbacks for a hot second. Like he was in all these bands, right? Like, but yeah, just I mean, and they would eventually. I mean, the Duff thing is interesting because he, because of Kurt's last couple of weeks, but right. Um, but yeah, just so funny. This whole fucking. Gun also, I love one of the quotes that Chris says where they. I don't know what she asks about, like, um, maybe about how how big they were. He's like. Oh, bro. Oh, no. He, she, no, she asked, asked about Weird Al. Yes. She asked about Weird Al. And she's like, Did you know? Like, what does it feel like to have Weird Al cover your song? And he goes, Oh, brother. 
Will the wonders ever cease? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Yeah. I wrote I wrote that quote down too. He also says they also well, said, Have you seen anyone else backstage? And I they keep even in the book they do this, they really did not like the black crows. For whatever reason, they really dislike the Black Crows. Well, because they're too much t- tradition. Yeah, I guess, yeah. but it's also like I bet you another band that Dave Grohl probably loved the Black Crows. Right. And <laughs> and he said and he says yeah. Chris goes yeah. I took a photo of uh, his leather pants with pot leaves on the sides. Yes. Those guys are snappy dressers. <laughs> making fun of Chris Robinson. Um, okay, so yeah, they have this interview with Tabitha Sorton with Dave and Chris, and it's it, but Kurt isn't there. And now we're going to go into the actual performance of Lithium and the very famous moment of him opening, doing the opening chords of, of Rape Me, yep. um, mm-hmm. which, you know, there's all this backstory about they wanted to perform it, they wouldn't let him, and they decided that they were going to do it because, um, you know, they, no, they weren't going to do it because there was people who work at MTV that would get fired if they played Rape Me and stuff. And now for all your lawn care needs, it's Nirvana! <laughs> But he does say that there's this moment where they almost cut to commercial because he starts playing Rape Me. Yeah. And it's like the perfect amount of time for the producer to like not reach the little black button. And uh. they go they go into Lithium. Um, but yeah, so now they're actually doing Lithium. And Kurt looks quite different from what we've seen uh, previously um, on these clips. Um, yeah. Roy, what was your first thoughts as you were watching this performance specifically? I loved like the Dutch boy uh, haircut that that Kurt kind of came out with, and like the the whole new style and clean shaven. Yeah, he's playing that uh, a white Japanese Stratocaster, which uh, I thought at the you know was really a, a cool uh, guitar to be playing. It's just he, I mean, he he looks better, you yeah. know, as, than the SNL clip where he's just clearly pretty strung out and and just sort of getting through it the rape me thing was was crazy because because you couldn't you know i'm watching it live because i i'm you know watching every single nirvana performance live at this point in my life and uh i couldn't tell what he said i would i didn't understand what was going on like it didn't you know didn't sort of make any sense uh and then from there on it felt like the world was clamoring for rape me uh, right, which, right. To be honest, is like not one of my favorite Nirvana songs. You know, have like they been, have they been okay, playing that on tour yet, or was this literally the yes. first? Okay. Yes, because they mentioned I know it in that the interview. because yeah. because that happened, and then how I finally like figured out what that was, and then before the the sort of stories were published to explain the whole thing, is that there was an Italian bootleg at Sound Exchange that had a live show where they played "Rape Me." And so I, I listened to uh, that vinyl bootleg, which is is nuts that they were putting out bootlegs on vinyl back then. Jesus, wow! Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then I had heard the song, and then I was like, oh, okay, now everything sort of sort of makes sense. And at that point, I was like, wow, this is a really you know amazing song. I think it kind of uh, it lost its luster like uh, on repeat uh, yeah. listenings, but it 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 felt like this it was this thing that was teased and you weren't supposed to be able to get yet. And so like, you know, being able to find a bootleg version of it felt like some sort of victory. Right. Yeah. We'll have a chance to talk about rate me in the next, the next clip. Um, but yeah, for me, 
Dave with the, the three crash plus a ride setup now. Yeah. And he is really hitting hard on this one. I, 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 I wrote, now we're cooking with gas. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's really, yeah. He, he's I guess, awesome. In this. I think with the whole Axel thing and then all the Vanity Fair stuff, to me, it's like they really wanted to come out and, like, fucking rip shit up yeah. tonight. You know? And, like, Lithium isn't the best song for that. I mean, I like Lithium, but, yeah. like, it's not the most powerful Nirvana song or something, right. you know, but they really do, especially Dave just really wants to like kick the shit out of that drum set on this performance. Um, and yeah, I'd like Rory said, like Kurt does look healthier. The clean shaven look of him. It just, it's kind of stark seeing it. Like you don't, he just looks so young. He look, he does look like a kid in this clip yeah. in any of the other ones that we'll see today. Um, but yeah, I think Kurt just fucking rips on this performance. I think he's fucking awesome. Um, the scream is something good. That's, yeah. that's really weird to me is that they play in an, an E standard, uh, which is, I think what they did live most of the time, but on, on the album, never mind, they're playing it in D standard. So it's, it's a, a, a full step down uh, yeah. when you listen to it on the record. And so this is, a, a full step up and then also they're playing it pretty fast which is so it's like it's a weird sort of like alternate uh parallel universe version yeah yeah song. and there there goes chris hitting himself in the head throwing the bass up into the air famously and right. landing on, on top of his head that's and, a heavy bass too right yeah. those things are like those those bases are like one solid piece <laughs> oh he like, definitely hit himself um and there's this thing where they said chris was stumbling off stage and Kurt is still, you know, stabbing his amp here and destroying his guitar, pulling down the amps onto the stage, and he's going to stand on top of the amps and almost fall himself. Grohl gets on mic after destroying some of his drums. Hi, Axel. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Axel. Where's right? Axel? Where's Axel? Yeah. Um, and then they do say they couldn't find Chris for a bit, and like people were like kind of nervous, like where the fuck is he? And he was lounging in the ready room or green room, whatever, with an ice pack on his head, a champagne bottle in his hand. And chatting with Queen <laughs> guitarist Brian May. <laughs> the, the only other thing I wanted to say about this clip is the how cringy it is that MTV planned to have stage divers. I was wondering about that. So you, yeah, I was. Gonna, they must be planned, right? Because they wouldn't let them on stage otherwise. Right? I'm assuming I, it could have been people from their their crew that they let on, you know, be on stage that just decided they wanted. But it, it seemed it seems too choreographed for me to be that like so, they're all they're all stage diving in a very like particular way yeah and then just fucking no one like it's it's not that kind of crowd like there is no pit to to like catch you yeah uh, one of them falls it looks like they fall right on the floor the one that goes oh, straight uh, down the so middle cringy and bad and i yeah. can't believe that someone didn't make the call to like cut the stage diving <laughs> instead of having yeah. it look uh, uh as bad as it does also dana carvey uh not great no, but let's be fair to Dana here, man. Like he's put in some weird situations on this clip. Uh, no, I know. It's just uh, it was like, just the one we're watching a, right now. For all your long-haired needs, you yeah, know, I'm yeah, like, yeah. What? Come I on, mean, it man. is funny that he says something like um, the Nirvana ride is permanently closed or something. That was kind of <laughs> yeah. a good line. Um, but yeah, so then they win best alternative music video. Nirvana smells like Teen Spirit, and two cops and a Michael Jackson impersonator come up on stage to accept the award. Yep, and. You know, Dana Carvey actually says accepting is Michael Jackson. So it seems like Dana Carvey's in on this bit. But the thing about this weird Michael Jackson impersonator, he plays it so straight. And the mm. crowd, like, doesn't know how to react. They're not laughing. They're not clapping. They're like, what the fuck is going It's just, yeah. I can't describe it or really talk about it. It's just, like, a very, very strange. And, Rory, you were watching this live. Do you remember being like, what the fuck is this? 
yeah, yeah. And I, I, <laughs> that was my reaction in the moment, and I think it was everyone's reaction. And I think the quote in the in "Come as You Are" is uh, sometimes Kurt likes to make bad jokes, right? Like there, there's just a real. I think they, I think they thought that was going to go over like gangbusters. It also, it, it bombs. It absolutely like bombed. It with totally the bombed. Yeah. It does seem a little bit more like something the Foo Fighters would do to me, you know, yeah. like, like I, I, and so I wonder uh, what the genesis of that was. And if, if Dave had a, a spot in that, cause it has that sort of goofiness. That yeah. It's, don't really it, associate with Nirvana. Yeah, exactly. Look. That's exactly how I felt about it. It's like, yeah. this isn't Nirvana shit at all. Well, I don't know. It to me, it feels in line with Chris singing the beginning of that thing. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Do you know, like yeah. they're they're not as dour and and no I no, think. no no so no. I think it's that, just sitting on the past. Yeah. So I think I think if <laughs> if things had like continued, you would have gotten more of that. I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? And now it's like the myth making of like sad, addicted, you know, right tears music. You know, it's like it's the right. Um, no, that's true. Um, and then this end of this clip here, they have Wilson Phillips and Boyz the Men. Presenting best new artist, the best new artist nominees: Tori Amos, Arrested Development, Cracker, that that Boys to Men, uh, Wilson Phillips Christmas album. Yeah, Yeah, check it out. I I know it sounds good. Um, Cracker and then Nirvana. And and I was like, you know, watching this, you're like, I think Nirvana is going to pull this one out, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I love that Cracker was on the list. This is best new artist. This is before Low came out. You know, this is like no offense. I mean, Tori Amos is her own legend in her own right. Yeah, but I mean, Arrested Development and Cracker, like. I don't know. Yeah, right. Uh, but, right after Camper Van Beethoven, I think. So like, it's like when Cracker is like yeah, Nirvana. Nirvana's getting this little movement, I think. Um, and yeah, it just quickly on this, it is kind of disarming. Kirk comes out here and he does kind of drop the veil a little bit, like for like ten seconds. You know, he comes out. I'd like to thank my family and our record label and our true fans, and he cracks this smile. I'd like to thank my family and our record label. And our true fans. And you can't believe everything you've seen here now, can you? You know, it's really hard to to uh, believe everything you read. Thanks. Remember Joseph Goebbels. I feel like this moment in time, he is kind of like beaten down. And he's like, yeah. I'm going to take a moment to like be happy for like 10 seconds. You know, like this smile he gives is so like disarming, you know? I, so it's funny. I read that differently. I, I read that as our true fans was as kind of like a, we're not with this hanger on bullshit. This is for the people who like get it. No, I don't think that's different from my read. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm just, I guess, I guess my, the smile to me is a little cynical where it's like, he smiles again here. Yeah. I just think he's taking a moment to like build in or like take in the success and yeah. like I don't know. I I just think seeing him smile like that was disarming and, and a little strange. Yeah. You know? Well, I, I think, and he was cute. He looks like a cute guy. That smile. It's a <laughs> well, cute little smile, Kurt. You should have smiled more, man. Well, I think like, speaking to him looking better, you're you're getting him in his more kind of like alert, resting state, right? As opposed to right. I'm fucked up. Right. And Chris shouting, remember Joseph Goebbels? Dude, I, what is that about? I, I was He's like... Ca- this is all the Vanity Fair shit. This is all the Vanity Fair shit. He says, oh, don't remember... reference to something? Kurt, no, he's just saying like, you know, this is all they're obsessed with the media hating them. 
This is yeah. what it is. Like yeah. they talk about don't it's really hard to believe everything you read. This is the other thing that Kurt says yes. you know, yeah. at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're all obsessed with this Vanity Fair article. And they're well Kurt is, and then in you know, because of that, the entire band is obsessed with it, right? Yeah. It's dominating their whole lives. So uh sorry, Rory, go for it. I was just going to say the the crowd so clearly has zero idea what he's talking about. Absolutely. Like, like it's such big news in their world and they have this yes. the feeling that like everybody, you know, has read this article and and has uh, uh is against them because of it and he makes that reference and it just like lands with such a thud because no one knows what the fuck he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So so is the is the Goebbels thing is that like a You know you know who Joseph Goebbels yes, is? Yes, I do. Okay, so he's Which the Nazi like... media guy. He was the Nazi propagandist. <laughs> oh. And oh, so oh, they're oh, saying oh, that okay. like, you know, it was the, the media, you know, the media is uh, like fascist and evil is what they're saying. Okay. Cuz to me, I'm watching this I'm like, remember what I was he's like He's not what? saying like he's he's not talking no, about like I, legit that's how I read it. So thank <laughs> Okay, Thank okay. You, you thought he was actually me. like honoring Joseph Goebbels? That's well, what you're I know saying. He, I know he wasn't, <laughs> but I was like, "What the fuck?" I don't know if you've heard Chris talk before, he's not exactly a Nazi. Um, no, I know that. I know that, but yeah, that, that's funny. so. It wasn't a it wasn't a Phil Anselmo. Uh, no, he's state. saying they're, they're <laughs> okay. obsessed. It's all about this Vanity Fair article. It's unbelievable. Okay, um, okay so let, let's move on because. We've been talking a lot, and we have two clips left, and we have a dumb little game at the end, Rory. So just so you know, we got to get moving. Um, right. So um, we, we're going to move now into just in utero. Let's talk about in utero. Yeah. And so it's produced by Steve Albini, and the I need to hear Rory's Albini take because <laughs> reading reading this book, reading Come as You Are, Albini is. Just, I mean, yes, he's a, a huge piece of shit and an asshole. He's also incredibly compelling. Like, I understand in 1993, <laughs> I understand the Albini thing. Yeah. And they even go into this whole thing around, like, you know, it, contemporaneous, like, while it's recording, they ask Kurt, how could you work with Albini? He's, like, famously a misogynist. And Kurt's like, yeah, like, you know, but we can't um, keep people on the outside for some problematic views all the time. And, like, we want to bring them along. Like, they, they were having conversations around Albini's problematic nature in 1993. That's interesting. I didn't while really, recording, I didn't in really Euro. think about that. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, and I just want to read this quick quote before I'm going to kick it back to Rory because I need your Steve Albini take overall. But he does say <laughs> Albini says Courtney Love tried to butt in on the proceedings, but he won't say exactly what the problem was. And Albini says, "I don't feel like embarrassing Kurt by talking about what a psycho hose beast his wife is." <laughs> Says Albini, especially because he knows it already. Is that a Wayne's World reference? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it probably is. <laughs> and then Courtney Love, Albini, and then, you know, Ezra goes to Courtney Love, and Courtney replies, the only way Steve Albini would think I was a perfect girlfriend would be if I was from the East Coast, played the cello, had big tits and a small hoop earrings, wore black turtlenecks, had all matching lug- luggage, and never said a word. Do you know what that's a reference to? No. Steve Albini's girlfriend. Like okay. actually describing Steve Albini's girlfriend. Okay. Yeah. It's a swipe at Steve Albini's. Uh, and I don't know. Well, okay. That information that I just shared is hearsay. Okay. Uh, but my friend Lainey uh, was friends with the girlfriend in question who played mm. cello on in utero. Uh, and that's what she told me. She said that ah. that description. I mean, is that makes exactly sense. The level of like you know precision in that description. It does sound like they're yeah, describing yeah. an actual person. Yeah, it's like okay, what what archetype is that? Yeah, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's sort of like you know the East Coast elitist yeah, girlfriend yeah. or whatever. The play but, cello yeah. part is kind of a tell, right? Right, right, like, right, like, right. Why right. is that in there? That's <laughs> yeah, such right, a exactly. Random piece of it. Um, but yeah, so just they talk about this recording, and it's like yeah. you know, how do you feel about Albini's? Oh yeah, like, sound? sorry. 
Yes. What is your Albini take overall, Roy? Uh, hu- huge fan. Uh, uh, incredibly uh, influential on my production. Hmm. Um, I, I always aspired more towards a uh, Steve Albini drum sound than a Nevermind drum sound yeah. when doing my recording stuff. I've, I'm a big fan of room mics and, you know, just really big bombastic uh, drums. He's he's a master at it. It's it's hard to uh, uh, even try to emulate. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think there was a ton of possibility w- within Utero. And I, I do love that album. Like, I think it's great. There's also some songs on it that I just skip every single yeah. time. Uh, Penny Roll T is is my least favorite Nirvana song. Uh, uh, it, it, it's, to me, it has the, if you asked AI to create a Nirvana song, I think it'd be pity royalty, right? right? Like it's going to take like some subject matter that's sort of uncomfortable and make it really achy. Uh, but I, but for me, it just doesn't add up to, to actually like feeling like, uh, the stuff that really connected with me for, for Nirvana. So, but, you know, serve the servants, like uh, heart shape box is a fantastic song. Um, it's got some of the best, uh, some of the, among some of the best Nirvana songs on it. I love the way that the drums sound. I think overall, Steve Albini maybe got a little too into his head about trying to not make it sound like Nevermind, mm-hmm. um, yeah. because I because I think he's done other albums, you know, like Surferosa, uh, that have the bombastic drum sound, but also still sound like a record or yeah. more like a record, cleaner. Uh, yeah. And in Utero, he was he was trying to do stuff with like the guitar panning and stuff to make it more like a three piece and you know cool but yeah that was the whole thing with albini in the the book too where he's like double tracking guitars is like sellout bullshit and it's like dude it's fine like it's everyone double tracks guitars it sounds good like calm down um but yeah alex what is what's your relationship with in utero um i mean similar to the other uh records Mm -hmm. where i just kind of know it by osmosis um i mean i when I hear it, I immediately hear, and like you said about drums, like for me, whenever I hear an Albini recording, it's because I can tell the drums, like his snare drum sounds the same. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's actually one of my complaints about him is that it very much is if you're going to go in and he says where he's like, I just set up the mics and walk away. It's like, I guess, but like everything, when it's produced by Albini, it really sounds like it was yeah. produced I by I mean, Albini. for me, like the seminal one is like McCluskey. Right. I think that is like the ultimate Steve Albini sound is like the McCluskey. Reference. Yeah, but but to me, um, I think there's a bit of like, you can't really go through the Steve Albini process without sounding like you made a Steve Albini record, mm. you know? Like, so, and sometimes it's great, but like it didn't work for Screaming Females, you know, as a recent thing, you know, I find it didn't serve them. So it doesn't always work, but I think it does, it does work on In Utero. And I think part of it's because of Dave Grohl. Um, yeah, where he can slam the shit out of those drums and the like big cavernous Albini sound kind of plays to that. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, for me, it's like I I still love this record. Yeah. Um, and it is funny listening. We talked about it before. I think Rory referenced it before. Like the listening to the Scott Live version of Heart Shape Box on the record, it does sound like considerably different than the rest of the record um and like there's all this stuff in the book about them fighting back and forth and albini was like gonna like not let them do that and like have all these fights over it but like it is funny too reading about like nirvana's react we'll start this clip in a second but like nirvana's like plan and reaction to in utero where they're so obsessed with it 
you know, sounding lo-fi and sounding live and raw. And then they listen to the playbacks and the, you know, the first little mixes of it and the demos. And they're like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, but maybe not that much, Steve. Like, they like actually sort of like renege on it. Yeah. At least that's my, you know, that was my impression in the book, at least. Yeah. Yeah, I think saying that you wish that Nevermind was re-recorded from a boombox into a microphone and then actually having your record sound like that are two different things. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And so we're going to watch um, September 25th, 1993. They're back on SNL with, with Charles Barkley hosting, um, as we referenced before, about two hours ago. Um, and they're going to do two songs. They're going to do Heart Shape Box and they're going to do Rape Me. Ladies and gentlemen, Nirvana. Like you said, like Heart Shape Box is just like an A plus Nirvana song. Like it does not get it just I love this song. I love this performance of it. Um it's also the first TV performance and first performance at all of Pat Oh really? Of Pat Smear in the band. It's the oh. first time he ever played with Nirvana in public in public. Oh, cool. Um was on SNL, which is like quite the uh, intro to the band, right? Also another another uh canny move by um by Kurt to get the guitar player from the germs and this like ultimate like cred building move, you know, um, which I don't think anyone really thought about, or I, I shouldn't say anyone, but you know, it's not like his, you know, that's really going over on the fans, but the people who knew were probably like, Oh, cool. You know, yeah. like guy from the germs, like, Holy shit. That's like, OG LA punk, you know? Um, so I also don't know what he's doing. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> I, I listen. You to like it. can't really hear. Him no, I listen to it on my on my like my left speaker. My laptop's a little low, so I was like, "Oh, I can't hear him." Let me put some headphones on. I put headphones on. I was like, "Still can't hear him." I don't know what he's doing. I uh, think he's mixed down really low yeah. on this, which is weird. The next one you can hear him. But, yes, yeah. Um, but yeah, just quickly, there is a story about he was said he was like wasn't sure he was in the band or not before this, like hours before. <laughs> and he <laughs> says, "I was just sitting around at home waiting and thinking, shouldn't I be there?" referencing 30 rock and all, all was soon sorted when the band's tour manager phoned Pat with hours to spare. Smear didn't hold any grudges after quote. It was funny. It really added to my nerves. Jesus. It's like, Hey dude, uh, you actually, you should come down to 30 rock and perform with Nirvana on Saturday night live yeah, on live. By the way, you're going <laughs> to yeah. do that. Um, but yeah, Rory, what was, uh, what was going through your head as you watched, watched heart shape box here for the first time in a while? I mean, it, it, it's they look so much more put together and like actually sort of like styled and stuff than in any yeah. of the previous clips. Like, like it's it, it still got the uh, the shirt over a shirt sort of style thing going on, but now you can tell it's a much nicer shirt underneath, and it's a much <laughs> yeah. nicer shirt over that shirt, and so it's like it's it, it looks still grungy, I guess, but just definitely has a much more sort of like put together sheen and his, his hair is all sort of nice. I just, I, I, I like this version of the band because it also, you know, bringing in a second guitarist, I think they were starting to realize that they couldn't really sound like their records with as just a three, a sloppy ass three piece. And yeah. so they started to kind of like get their shit together. Uh, and 
yeah i mean it, it's this this feels like if this trajectory had just kept going like what the band could have been yeah uh, then got derailed yeah and i mean i, I more great dave backing vocals yeah. on this one Fantastic. um and kurt solo with the tremolo is extremely cool and i think like you said rory like they've kind of just all grown up in the past year in different ways chris and, looks totally different like who's the guy on base looks you like know? he's in the beach boys yeah it's like he, he cut his hair he's wearing a button down you know like right um although i will say they're Pretty much everyone's style has his classic in every moment, except for Dave and his weird, like, you know, pants under shorts and things like that. But they, they their looks tend to have held up completely. And it could be because we're in like a 90s, 2000 fashion reboot, but like they totally look like they could be on TV today and not look like, why are these guys dressed like they're in 1993? Right, 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 right. Um, I felt kind of bad for Chris watching these because like there's this retroactive thing that happens with male pattern baldness. Yes. Where yes. I, like at the time I, if you had asked me like, is Chris going bald? I would have been like, no, what the fuck are you talking about now watching the clips? It's much, much more apparent because I, I know what the end uh, result looks like. You know? <laughs> yes. As someone who's currently in that process, it is something I see and wince. <laughs> uh, yeah, me too. Like it's a real cut to the me. core where I'm like, Ooh, Chris, I'm sorry, buddy. Look, it's yeah. all gonna work out. Yeah, <laughs> he's like he's like what twenty six or something. Yeah, it's early, but yeah, um, a lot tougher. He's also very tall, so you kind of just look at him and God, looking he's at tall him. as fuck, man. He's super tall. Guys like a, <laughs> Charles. Barley. There's Charles. There's our boy Charles. This makes me do the promos with them. Where it yeah, there's does. a lot of very funny promos <laughs> of him of Barkley and uh, Nirvana promoting the the show that week. Yeah. I saw those. Um, but yeah, then they're gonna go into Rate Me, which you kind of already talked about, but. I did. It was funny just thinking about like what, like how did they put out a song called "Rape Me" in this culture in 1994, <laughs> like or not even 94, right? I, and, or like how did why? they do it? Like I don't understand. Like, well, it's almost to me. It almost feels like it's probably more possible than I disagree. I don't know. I can't like, tell. It was like, like look, I understand America is fucked up and like censored overload right now, like sure. censorship overload, but like. Just like what four years before this, they're having congressional hearings about like Twisted Sister or some shit. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like it is like a conservative yeah, Christian too. nation, and like they're putting out the biggest band in the world is putting out a song called "Rape Me." It's just I think it's fucking crazy. Um, and they did say that um, he they relabeled the song "Waif Me" W A I F on the single "Make Me Skinny," and because on the censored in Walmart. The censored Walmart and Kmart version of In Utero, it said, Waif Me. Oh, my God. And the chain stores had originally refused to carry the album because of the song's title, as well as the fetus collage on the back cover of, of In Utero, um, sure. which was also edited for Walmart and Kmart. Yeah, it was airbrushed out. I remember seeing it. And it's it's funny. He, Cobain had originally wanted to retitle the song Sexually Assault Me but decided on the meaningless title Waif Me, knowing that another four-letter word was required in order to make a quick graphic change. Hmm. And it is funny that you think about, like, whoa, wow, like, Kurt Cobain, like, changing the name of his song, this dedicated artist, the most serious artist in the world, censoring himself in that way for Walmarts? Like, what? You know, and there's a quote. He says, um, you know, Cobain defended the band's decision to release a censored version of the album by explaining, one of the main reasons I signed to a major label was so people would buy my records at Kmart. Yeah, in some towns, that's the only place kids can buy records. Accurate, and it's, it's so like there, and there's that populist thing in Kurt that you yeah. forget. You know, like 
that's cool, man. I'm glad he had that attitude about it. You know, I, just, I don't remember him that way. It's interesting. Um, but yeah, you know, like uh, Rory said before, maybe not the best Nirvana song. I still like it, though. But like this thing of doing like abrasive choices for song two on SNL. Yeah. Territorial pissings and rape me, right? right. Like, I don't know. They could have done a number of other songs off of In Utero. Yeah. Right? What was the second single off of In Utero? All Apologies, maybe? Yeah, maybe it was oh. All Apologies. Um, or but... did that one blow up after Unplugged? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, I... there, was, there, was, there was no second video. And here he is eating a brownie. Yeah, okay. So it was All Apologies slash Rape Me was the second single. Which is weird that they they like an advertised a, a it as a A and B single, like a double A, yeah, single. a double A single, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which is kind of strange. You know, I couldn't help <laughs> notice in this performance um, is some of the similarities in the onstage presence of Pat Schmier, Schmier, Pat Smear, and uh, and Chris. <laughs> Did I just call him Pat Schmier. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it's close <laughs> enough. Um, where they're just what I wrote, they just look floppy. Do you know what I mean? They're just kind of like. Yeah, yeah, like uh, uh, wacky fli- uh, inflatable tube man. Yeah, like and 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 <laughs> and they both kind of play that way. Do you know what I mean? Like Chris sounds like he's just sloppy, right? And like I, I, I also when I whenever I watch him, I'm like, how does he play the higher strings on his bass? Because like he's it's down around his ankles, it's so low, and you know you can see him barely reaching the you know the E string, and it's like. It's so like it's really holding yourself back, buddy. Where you can't, yeah, yeah. Um, you know. And and I do remember watching a you know Foo Fighters documentary where they talk about getting Chris to play on a song, um, and he and uh, Dave's like, oh, I immediately could tell it was him, and I was like, well, yeah, because he's got a very distinct mm-hmm. way he plays. Yeah, um, and then just to wrap it up, no instrument smashing this time. Yeah, much more serious. You know, they, they do it. They get off stage. That's the end. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's get to the final one here. This one. This one. Their final TV performance ever. Um, and I do want to read this quote from to sort of preface this for this last performance of Kurt ever on TV, where the, the, Azra does kind of push him a little bit at the end of the book on like, so what do you think about the band moving forward, or what's the future for the band? And he says, but there's the question of whether Chris and Dave can keep up with Kurt. Kurt says, quote, I don't know. Kurt thinks Tris doesn't practice enough and that isn't a, he isn't imaginative enough. He isn't an imaginative enough player. Right. Quote, I get frustrated sometimes when we're trying to write a song because I'll sit there and play a riff for a long time and, and just listen to Chris and Dave try to come up with something else to help change the song. They hardly ever do that. They don't take the lead and they're always kind of following. And he's saying this like at the end of, of Nirvana. And yeah. I just wonder where... If he wanted to keep playing with them, or he was bored by them, or he's just bitching or stuff like that, but you read all these quotes where, like, dude, you're in the biggest band in the world. These two incredibly talented players. Like, why are you saying? Why are you shitting on Chris yeah. and Dave in these scenarios? You know, it's just yeah. a lot of that kind of stuff at the end with with Kurt. Well, it's like his internal monologue made external. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. That's right. like that's like okay. He had this one thought entered his brain of like, yeah, I could probably use some stretching out, and I don't think if Chris would be able to do that. Right. You know, normally that would be like, oh, I'm just going to put that back here and think about it later. But yeah, Rory, where do you think they would have gone? Like, do you think they would have been a band still? What kind of music do you think Kurt would have written before Kurt he hadn't died? Yeah. Um, I, I think they probably would have been on the like hiatus, get back together hiatus uh, plan would be my, my thinking. Kurt, Kurt used to, to collaborate with a lot of different artists on like other stuff. And I think he would have 
continued to do that. And we might've seen like Kurt Cobain, you know, solo stuff, but that, that quote that you read just makes me think how hardcore people do not appreciate what they have when they have it. Uh, and you, your perspective gets so fucked that you can't understand that you're playing with the best drummer in the entire world. Right. Uh, like <laughs> so at what point do you get so myopic that you're like, Oh, God, Dave Grohl just doesn't fucking bring it on the drums. <laughs> yeah. uh, He's not creative Christ. enough. What? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's it's hard to it's hard to hear at this point, and uh, I don't know what he was expecting or wanting. Yeah. You know, like what what was the thing that would have made him happy? It it, it feels like going through all of it he has this sort of perspective where no, nothing will ever make him happy. And I think that is depression. Like that is it. Which is right? like, yeah. like when nothing can make you happy, yeah. you are fucking depressed and yep. you're taking drugs that are depressants and it's making it worse and it's it's sending you down down a road. And so I, I don't I don't hold him accountable for any of those sort of ridiculous, stupid quotes that he's yeah. said. No, I totally agree. It's just the book is full of them. Yeah. He's he's fucking in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's when you said about myopic and if like you said depression is being in your own brain right and it's like you all you can do is be in this circle of of hating yourself right um and everything gets like kind of wrapped into that you know right um and then to have everyone feeding you back and there's a person with you at rehab documenting your life and so you're being forced to think about yourself when you already think about yourself all the time. Right. Uh, it's just this like perfect storm, um, you know, and he was depressed, like you said. Yeah. Uh, and pr- probably also bipolar, right? Lithium is referenced. We don't, you know, it's not like we have the diagnose on paper. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that's that, it's hard to deal with. Well, this is a good setup. February 27th, 1994, we are going to watch the final television performance ever by the band Nirvana. And it is on a Italian TV show called yeah. Tunnel. Because they're playing in front of a tunnel, right? That's so I, I'm going to give a little bit of context for, for why it's called Tunnel. The title okay. of the program, as well as the scenography, as Rory described, the tunnel of a subway uh, never finished building, an old gallery with cobwebs and sparks from which pieces of the moribund First Republic emerge, and a new gallery illuminated at the bottom of a light where the hopes of a second republic to be founded appear are a metaphor of the Italian political situation of the period. And so this show, you couldn't get the really context clues of what's going on here. It's like... And it's like a early version of like the Daily Show almost, but more like on steroids, where all of these different actors are playing political archetypes, and their mm. characters constantly on the show, and then the woman host is the one kind of interacting with them and dealing with them. But even in this case, like this guy who is the beginning of this clip, he's like the ultra right wing conservative. I was say, okay, so this is this complaining is... about people having AIDS. And I was like going to say, is this sarcastic or yeah? Like, so okay. that's what I'm saying. It's like the Daily Show. Yeah, okay. it's like the you know, the correspondent or like the Colbert Report. Yeah, right. Like it's all that version of like, but nineties. 1994 okay, Italy. Because by the way, I was watching this not aware of that. <laughs> I knew I probably knew you wouldn't be. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? This guy at the beginning. Yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah. No, I was like, as an intro to Nirvana, this guy's fucked up. He calls gay people <laughs> fetishists. Right. And, like, so that's the idea. It's like this is the incredibly ultra right wing guy. Yeah. And the host is like, well, you know what? I'm gonna bring on the most like populist progressive band ever. Nirvana is here yeah, to shut okay, this okay, man okay, down. Okay. <laughs> 
you know, is, is the idea. Um, yeah. But I guess what? It's a wild fucking sounding show. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about this. Performance. They're playing Serve the Servants, which is the opener on In Utero. And um, they're looking very swanky. They're looking very Italy here. With I Pat's th- jacket and Chris's jacket. Even Kurt has his leather jacket on. So, so my thought is that they bought all those that day. You think that day? Yeah, it would They're me. in Italy. Yeah. yeah. Right? And you just see the jackets look added on. Right? And it's just... I, I was going to... I think maybe the TV show brought the, those to the table is my thought. They just look way too fashionable for them. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, look at the cut on these jackets, man. <laughs> I mean, it, sure looks, it, it looks good on Kurt. I, li- I like, I like, I like the jacket on Kurt. Um, I, I have to say though, like l- listening to this, watching this, they went out on top. Like this is their last TV performance, I was and they say. sound fucking fantastic. They sound like yeah. the band that they always could have sounded like. It's you know there there's no like flubbing up of all of the the parts and stuff like all the sloppy kind of like past days like they're actually yeah. a dialed in badass rock band at this yes. point and just completely ending on such a high note. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean like this is like a low key like a plus Nirvana song. Like I love yeah. Serve the Servants. Yeah, and even though it's the opener on you in utero, I feel like the song never really gets mentioned a lot in the history of Nirvana or like, you know, casual fandom of Nirvana. You never hear about this song. I fucking love this song. Yeah. And it's I, got, like, it's got a lead guitar riff, which Nirvana songs typically do not have. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and like you said, I think Kurt's voice on this one sounds great. Kurt's solo sounds great. Um, yep. It also does look cool with these sparks flying around in the background behind, behind Dave. That's a real tunnel. They show the physical <laughs> nature of the camera angle. It's on like a green screen or whatever, you know? So, so here's a, here's a question: Are they wearing the coats just because it's really fucking cold? Because Dave Grohl is wearing fingerless gloves. Oh, maybe. Which I don't think he would wear unless he had like really needed to. I have on my notes here: Dave with gloves? Question oh, mark. Okay, okay. <laughs> so yeah. One of my favorite live recordings of Dave Grohl is with Queens of the Stone Age, um, playing at some one of the Belgian festivals, right? Uh, and he's mm-hmm. wearing gloves. Oh, huh, okay. Right. So, so like black, like like Kenny Arnoff. Gloves, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, which I think is like my least favorite thing on a drummer. It's like take those gloves off, dude. Um, but <laughs> yeah, Bill Bill Barry. Remember yeah. Bill Barry's gloves? Yeah. Also, Kurt just looks sad. Yeah, he does. It looks a little. I don't old. know how to, he does like, look a little old or sad. I, the rest, of the, I agree. Well, well, also the timing. Well, of especially this. when they they go back at the end of this song and they bring out the improvers, the improv team yeah. back, and you're seeing Kurt in the middle of this, and you're like, oh, I feel like Kurt does not want well, to be there. Well, the timing there. of this, right? It just, doesn't he it's, overdose it's, the next morning? Is it? Well, he doesn't. You mean the first time he overdoses? No, no. This is. Doesn't he? Doesn't he die it, the next morning? If that's what you're no, saying. no, 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 no. But a couple days later, he overdoses. In Germany, I think you're definitely close because I was having the same thought. I looked it up. It's like a day or two later, he is in like real trouble. But that's the first. So that's the first major overdose. He He accidentally, quote unquote, overdoses. That's the champagne and oh yeah. So this is like his first real suicide attempt. Yeah, which I think is that night or the next day. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 bad. Um, and that's why this is so interesting because it is right before. You know, he's in the thick of it during this. Right. That Sonic Blue Mustang is just fucking amazing, too. The, the I, I, yeah. <laughs> like, this is, there's a guy on, on Instagram. Uh, it's like at Nirvana Guitars that I, that I follow when he like recreates all of the guitars that Kurt Cobain had. Uh, uh, and it's just like porn for 46 year old white guys. Uh, <laughs> to watch. 
I mean, besides the actual porn I watch, I also watch. Yeah, I was like, so like your search term on Pornhub is like Kurt Cobain guitar. Is that is that what? Yeah. You, okay. Uh, I would I would not I would not do that search. I'd, I'd like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm gonna do it what, now. We'll see what comes that. up. Some yeah. whatever weird shit comes Ugh. up now. Yeah, the the end here. They try to get Chris involved in some of the improv, and he's like, eh, "I'm good. I'm not gonna do this." Right. <laughs> um, and Kurt just books it out of there. Um, and that, yeah, that's the last time we'll ever see him on TV is him walking off this weird Italian show called called Tunnel. Oh, you know what? Okay, so it wasn't the um, the champagne and rehypnol thing that I was thinking of. So I'm looking at his Wikipedia now. So following a tour stop in Germany on March 1st, two days later, mm. um, he was diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. Two days later. Hmm. Um, and then he flew to Rome for the next day. And on March 3rd, he overdosed. Wow. Okay. That really, um, really, it was that week. It was so, crazy. yeah. So, but also the idea that he, two days later, he had severe laryngitis and bronchitis and he sounded so good two days before. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Um, I mean, that probably speaks to his lifestyle. Right. That he can get so sick so quick. You but know? Like Roy said, like, they sound so good on that. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's why when I read that, I was like, whoa, like, how did that, how did he pull that off? You know? Yeah. Um, well, I guess to wrap up here before, before we get into the last segment of the show, I did want to read this quote. Last quote I'm going to read from Come As You Are. They, it's like the, towards the very end. He says, Kurt doubts the band will have any lasting influence, say 20 years from now. Quote, fuck no. It's sad to think what the state of rock and roll will be in 20 years. It's already so rehashed and so plagiarized that it's barely alive now. It's disgusting. I don't think it will be important anymore. There'll be another band just like the Black Crows 20 years from now doing a version of the Black Crows doing a version of the Faces. And so there's all this, <laughs> this stuff about Kurt saying, like, I mean, band. he was, yeah. he was a little bit right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I was saying. I mean, he was yeah. half right about sort of rock and roll not being very important anymore. But he's, he's bringing some real 27 year old energy. <laughs> but right definitely there. not right about uh, the band having no well, lasting influence. Well, speaking to the, the depression brain, you know, where it's like, you're going to be mem- remembered. And he's like, no fucking way. You right. Know? Right. Um, um, but yeah, I guess before we wrap up, you know, the Nirvana talk, Rory, like, what, what do you remember? About April '94, when it happened, what oh, was your, you know, what was your reaction, or what sort of, you know, how, how did you go about your day when you found out that Kurt Cobain had died? Uh, I came home from school, uh, and there was a message on the answering machine, and uh, it was this girl Becca, who I hadn't talked to in a really long time. I was kind of estranged from her, and she left a message, and she was like, "Hey, Rory, uh, just calling to see how you're doing. Did you know that Kurt Cobain killed himself?" Bet you did. Bye. Like I can wow. still hear you can just, the you, message. You know, it's like the intonation of that you can still yeah, like, hear in like, your head. I was like, "What the fuck?" And so you know, and and again, I I know this. I keep beating this dead horse, but no internet, <laughs> so I, yeah. I couldn't verify instantly. But uh, uh, you know, got on MTV, and that's where you started to to have things confirmed. And uh, did the uh, uh, you know, I was uh, looking for some way to drown the the misery and pain that I was feeling, uh, which was amplified by my age uh, a lot. And so what I decided to do was go to my friend Dave's house and get a, a bunch of, a couple of bottles of Cisco wine. Oh, uh, Cisco, baby, I have a history uh, with Cisco. <laughs> uh, Cisco dessert wine. Fortified, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's got nutrients and it... Uh, <sighs> hurt me pretty bad uh you know i just got blackout drunk 
which is stupid. And, and, but I just didn't know what to do with those feelings. I, I, it, it, it definitely had felt like a part of my personality at that point was being a huge Nirvana fan. And so it's like, well, what do you do now? Like yeah, where, right. where, where does, where do I go from here? What about his daughter? I mean, yeah. it was just so, uh, I mean, did, did you start the impossibles right after or were you guys already together uh, at that point? Oh gosh. I wonder what the, you know, it was probably like that fall. Um, it wasn't, it was 94 when we started. So, um, yeah, I think there was, that's so funny, you know, cause it, it, it probably went from that sort of low and in a way, I think you could sort of look at the impossible's music as a reaction to Nirvana and Kurt Cobain's death and the sort of like, uh, negative place that it had gotten to by the end of, of like rape me uh and our our music trying to bring in this like positive more positive like let's uh let's let's have fun with our heartache uh sort of right. sort of thing going on with it wow okay so any final thoughts alex i mean can you follow up rory's story with anything? no i just i the speed of it all yeah you know that's what i have to wrap my mind around it's such a small chunk of time and yeah. There's so much recorded output by them. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do they pull it off? Do you know what I mean? Like they, they like. There's so much stuff to digest from them, and it only, it really was 91 to 94, right? And well, I mean, like, Bleach, Bleach was 89. Yeah, but like, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. their their time in the spotlight was so quick, mm-hmm. um, and at the time, I didn't come across to me and now as i've gotten older and years seem shorter than they used to it's like wow that's short amount of time yeah you know as well, especially someone, a lot of bands we've talked about on the i was show. gonna say as someone who was in a band for 10 years mm. like how did they make so much and it progressed so much and, you know there's just so much about it that is like amazing in, yeah. in, in how quickly it happened mm-hmm and of course, I really at by you know by the end of this and thinking about that, I really feel for Kurt not being ready for what his life became and how sad it is. You yeah, know? yeah, it just sucks. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think we talked about Nirvana. We did. Um, and we just have one quick segment to end the show. I knew that was going to be kind of. You know, it's going to be a very fun episode because we love Nirvana. These clips are incredible. But I also knew it was going to end on kind of a downer note. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It it was going to happen. I mean, but appropriately so. So I thought, you know, let's play a very dumb game to end the show very quickly. Roy, are you you up for a dumb game after talking about Kurt? I am am 100% up for a dumb game. Okay. So the the, the game we're going to end very quickly this week is called Skank, Dank, or Tank. (laughs) Skank, Dank, or Tank. Yep. And what what we're going to do... I'll take skank. Yeah, well, you know what? You're going to, you'll see. <laughs> For me, I am a skank as well. <laughs> so I, what it's going to be is, you know, we're going to go back and forth between Rory and Alex. Okay. And I'm going to provide a a phrase, a, a couple of words. So, you know, whatever, you know, however you would describe this. And yeah. you're going to tell me whether it's a ska album. Oh, baby. A strain of marijuana. <laughs> or the nickname of a retired American tank. Skank, right. dank, like or tank. Okay, cool. Wow. And yeah. and so you know you can you can either you know tell me ska, you can say weed, you can say retired American tank. I would you know it'd be great if you can say dank, you know, or skank or, or tank. tank for your answer. But you know I, I leave it up to you all for the purview of how you'd like to respond to this game. Sure. So we're going to start with our guest Rory, um, as as is customary. 
Right. So the first one we have, Rory, is Gorilla Warfare. Skank, <laughs> Dank, or Tank? Gorilla Warfare. Okay, I, I don't think it's a tank. I don't recall a Sky album, although, you know, I don't know all of them. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to go Dank on this one, John. Rory, you get the first point of Skank, Dank, or Tank. Yes! It's a hybrid strain known to make you aroused. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, apparently. Right? <laughs> Yeah, to leaflet.com. Gorilla, gorilla warfare is supposed to make you horny. It's just so funny what they say weed does for you. Yeah, I know. It's like no, it it all does the same shit. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> like, you know, get very particular. Um, all right, R- Rory leads one nothing. Alex, the next one we have is couch potatoes. Couch potatoes, skank, dank, or tank? Skank. The Busters are a German third wave ska revival band uh, nice. established as a side project in 1987, playing two-toned influenced ska. They became one of the best known Germany ska bands, having a minor hit single in Germany with a ska cover of Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy. Cool. <laughs> yeah. Ever heard, ever, heard, ever heard of the Busters, Rory? No, sir. I okay. Well, it, it rings a bell, but then again, it should because that's like just a standard ska name, the Busters. Yeah. Mm. Um, all right. Well, we've got to... We got a tight game so far. <laughs> one to one. Um, Rory, Bush Twins. Bush Twins. Skank, Dank, or Tank? Bush Twins. Uh, uh, like George W. Bush's daughters? Unfortunately, I cannot give you any hints in Skank, Dank, or Tank. But. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, that's what I, I yeah. Uh, one of uh, George Bush, George W. Bush's daughters used to come into my 7-Eleven when I worked there. Uh, on Lake oh, Austin. Jesus, really? What would, what would she buy? Cigarillos? Uh, I don't, <laughs> <laughs> blunt wraps. Yeah, blunt yeah. wraps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I'm gonna have to go dank again. Unfortunately, it is in the name of a retired tank. Oh that the Bush my... twins. I mean, probably, you know, some idiots in the Iraq war named the their Bush tank the Bush twins. Right. Um, that makes sense. Sorry. But you know, you have you have more shots to go. Um Alex. Yes. Gary Poppins. <laughs> Gary Poppins. Skank, dank, or tank? Mary's brother. Yeah, apparently. Uh, great band name potential. With Remember, Gary. it's an al- It could be an album. Uh, no, I know, I know, mm-hmm. I know, I know, I know. Gary Poppins. Mm-hmm. It's weed. It's dank. Yeah. Hybrid, mm-hmm. hybrid uh, strain. No reported effects. No uh, specific sub effects reported. So, it so just weed. Anything? Just weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah, not okay. making you horny. It's not making so you it's not sleepy. Viagra weed. It's just, yeah. it's just weed. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, Rory. We have, we have one up your alley here. Widowmaker. <laughs> <laughs> the, for those for those maybe not as uh, big Impossible fans, this is a famous Impossible song. Also, Great song. But the in this case, famous. is it? Well, it's famous to us. In this case, is it Skank Dank or Tank though? Oh man, you did you did really good setting this up. Um, <laughs> That's a tough yeah, one. I'm going to assume that no ska bands would have named an album after one of our songs. Uh, <laughs> It does sound like it could be weed. It does sound like it could be a tank. Yeah. I can't say dank again, can I? If I get this wrong, I'm going to feel bad. Uh, uh, I'm I'm going to say dank. It's a tank. Ooh, that uh, could have gone, gone either way. I don't, yeah. That was By the way, one. we speak of uh, naming things after your band. Isn't Model Kit named after the Impossibles? Did we even talk Yo, about this? Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yeah, it's based, I get it's, that. It's named after okay. priorities and I times. forgot about yeah. that, yes. Yeah, I it's, said, yeah, my life is yeah. a model kit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot to mention that. Um, all right, well, it's only two to one, Alex leads, but Alex could take a commanding lead here with this one. Okay. One last breath. Skank, dank, or tank? 
one last breath. Skank. Skank. Yeah. Athena is a rock ska band from Istanbul, Turkey. <laughs> founded by Twin Brothers in 1987. It's regarded one of the best Turkish rock groups by many listeners. They've released eight albums and featured as a Turkish entry into the 2004 Eurovision Song Contest. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Skank. Wow. All right. Rory, you got some... You got some you got to make up some ground here. i got to be honest. I think I'm getting easier questions. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, <laughs> all right, Rory. Celebrate the bullet. Skank, Jesus. dank, or tank. Celebrate the bullet. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm not going to go dank again because that one keeps burning me. Uh, celebrate the bullet. I, I. It sounds like an album title to me. I'm going to say skank. Skank. Yeah. The, the Selector is an English two-tone ska revival band. Ah, Selector, of course. Founded in 1979. Um, diverse lineup of race yeah. and gender. Um, sound, both of you fans. Oh, yeah. The first Selector. The Impossibles opened for The Selector. Oh, oh wow. Yes. At uh, uh, the back room. Uh, before we... It was... That was... I think that was maybe our one of our first shows, maybe our actual first show. Holy shit! Cool first uh, show, yeah. <laughs> uh, I could be wrong. I, I could be wrong on that, but um, we uh, it was definitely the first time we ever played, or maybe the only time we ever played at the back room. Uh, and it was pre jerseys, so before the Impossible started wearing our our jerseys and everything. Right. Oh. Uh, we were still kind of working out what we were doing, but yeah, that first selector record is awesome. So. Like celebrate the bullet might be the second one. Um, all right, Alex, kill shot, kill, kill shot? shot, skank, dank or tank? Retired American tank. It's a weed, ah, Rory. Shit. You're back in this thing. It's just a hybrid strain, no reported defects. Rory, crippling depression. <laughs> crippling depression. Crippling depression. Bless you, Hank. Hank just sneezed. Bless you. Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't think this is right, but I'm just going to say that I love the idea of this being the name of a tank. <laughs> you know what? You are right. Oh my god! No way! It's a retired American tank, crippling depression. Crippling depression. We got a tie game. We got a tie game here. Yo, that is a wild name for a tank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like what? Yeah, I don't. You should see some of the ones I didn't pick. Um, <laughs> it's not like it's, it's like it's not even what it does at first. It's like what it causes. Yeah, it's yeah, wake. right. It's like PTSD. Yeah, basically. exactly. It's like yeah. you know this is this is gonna blow you up, and then your family will be, yeah. <laughs> you know, experience crippling yeah, depression. It's pretty fucked up. Yeah. Um, okay, we have four left, and we got a tie game three three. Oh shit, Alex, orgasmico. Orgasmico? Orgasmico. Fuck. I mean, so that is definitely either a ska album or a weed. Is this an Aquabats album? Uh, Orgasmico. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think the uh, Mormon ska band, the Aquabats, are going to... Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. They're a little more pizza party super rad than they were. (laughs) Um... (laughs) Alex, I need an answer. Skank. Deals Gone Bad is a yeah. band from Chicago, Illinois, founded in 1994. Oh. Their sound mixes reggae, rock steady, and ska music with American soul. I know Deals Gone Bad. They yeah. played with uh, the Maytal, Toots and the Maytals, the Scatolites, the English Beat, Chuck Berry, the Slackers. Is that like Idaho plus Orgasm? Is that how you get Orgasmico? What's the portmanteau there? I have no idea. <laughs> no, no idea. <laughs> um, all right, Alex, you, you've taken the lead four to three. We have a few left here. 
<laughs> Rory, you ready? Uh-huh. A tank. <laughs> A tank. <laughs> Skank, danker, tank. <laughs> A tank. Yep, a tank. The the uh makes me think it's not weed. I feel like it, you would just call a weed tank. You, would you name a tank a tank? That would be pretty funny. This is the question we have before us. It's like the band. Yeah, right. A tank. <laughs> I'm gonna say it's a tank. It's a tank. I, I'm <laughs> oh, so shit. happy you got that because like, great question, and I got it. I saw that nickname. I was like, this will be funny. This will fuck with them. Um, all right, we got two left. This is the uh, tank. Yeah. <laughs> we got two left. Yeah. It's four to four. Because Warriors our guest, he's getting one more than you, Alex. That's fair. So let's, let's do it's this. like playing last. at home. Yeah, exactly. Let's yeah. do these last two. Bingo pajamas. <laughs> Skank, danker, tank. Bingo pajamas. It's really silly, so I want to say ska. Um, but the, maybe that's my ska shame speaking to me, and I want to quiet that voice. You. That's only, only you can answer that. Yeah. Hmm. Bingo Pajamas. Mm-hmm. Scott album. It's a weed strain. Motherfucker. Oh. <laughs> Rory for the win. Okay. Back for the attack. <laughs> <laughs> Skank, dank, or take. This is a hard one. Back for the what attack. Is, what is a striper album uh, <laughs> that uh, Rivers Cuomo uh, cited in a Guitar World article that I then stole and turned into an EP title? Is that what it was? Wow. <laughs> By the way, my, my first entry into The Impossibles. Was back for the was attack. Was back for the attack. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a good, it's a good place to enter. Well, I, think that, a, I think that was our yeah. peak, actually. Like if I had to, if I had to, to name it, because hey, we made the first songs. We made the first album before we really knew what we were doing, and we made back for the attack when we had like you know really cemented that that initial sound that yeah. we had. Right. I remember um, buying it. Had the clear. Uh, I remember the C. It had an interesting jewel case going on with it. I do remember that. It was yeah. Uh-huh. It was, well, I heard it on an anthology, and I was like, "Was this part of the album or not?" I had to like figure yeah. out where you know because yeah. that's the first thing I ever heard was anthology. But you know, we're giving the win to our guest Rory, who guessed correctly that "Back for the Attack" is technically a ska album, um, <laughs> our EP, excuse me. Um, so congratulations, Rory. You're the winner of Skank Danker Take. Nice job. Awesome. Nice job. And you're the winner of talking about Nirvana on our podcast with us today. Yeah. Um, and we can't thank you enough for your time, um, enough for your music. Um, it was really a, a real pleasure getting to know you. Um, it's super exciting for us um, yeah. to getting to meet one of our longtime musical heroes and talk about a great band. Um, is there anything you'd like to, to plug? Anything you'd like to share with the folks where they can follow you or, or what you're up to these days? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Letting me talk about one of my favorite bands of of all time and a lot of people's favorite bands. So I feel really honored to have gotten to to talk about Nirvana. Um, If you would like to find me, uh, Rory ATX, on uh, most social platforms, uh, mostly active on Instagram, because what I do nowadays is mostly build guitars. So I post a lot of uh, progress shots of the guitars that I build. Uh, I also have a reverb shop that I, that I'm selling those uh, in. Uh, also, um, my band, uh, The Stereo, uh, like we mentioned at the top, put out a, a new album last year, 13. Uh, please check that out on streaming. And we are about to, we just released a music video for one of the songs uh, uh, off of 13. And we're also going to be releasing a in-studio performance, very pandemic-y, uh, thing to do, but uh, we we still did it, and I, I'm really proud of it. And 
uh, Jamie Wolford from the stereo has done just some phenomenal work on all of that stereo stuff, the artwork and the videos and the studio performance that we're going to put out. Uh, we did a Kickstarter for all of it that went super, super uh, well for us and hopefully for all the people who participated as well. We yeah. got to give a lot of uh, uh, sort of swag and and uh, extras uh, on top of the album that we wanted to make when we started that whole thing. So that's also been a, a fantastic journey. Last thing I'll plug, I have a podcast. So uh, if you're listening to this, you look like listening to podcasts. Uh, it's called Kings of No Hope, the story of the stereo. It is about uh. the band the stereo, which spoiler alert, I was kicked out of after I helped found it. And so it's about the whole history of the band, uh, including after I was uh, kicked out of the band and then all the way back to me rejoining and us uh, making this new album. I got to listen to that. I didn't know. Sorry. I, I, I'm going to be all over that. <laughs> wow. That sounds awesome. It's a breezy, it's a breezy read. It's, uh, read. it's a breezy <laughs> listen. It is uh, two and a half hours uh, in total. Uh, and it's uh, a nonfiction narrative. So if you like uh, stuff like serial or, or any of those uh, flavor of podcasts, uh, I, I like to think that it's it's worth the time. Yeah, highly recommend it. Yeah. Highly recommend the album that came out last year. Yeah, it's great. Um, it was really, really great. Congratulations on, on making that, Rory. Um, well, I think we're, we're all done, um, for uh, for us at least. And so you can follow Wait, us. At, yeah, only, oh, Rory, yes. Only, okay. only three hours? Are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is easily wanna... our longest episode ever. Which I knew it was going to be. I'm I, love you, um, I love that. I love that. I mean, that. look, not every. We're not going to talk about Nirvana every day. So this is from the start. I knew it was just going to keep happening. As you get more comfortable, you just want to keep talking about shit. Well, I wanted to keep talking with Rory. I'll, yeah. I'll say that at least. Yeah. You can follow us at TMGT Pod at G- on Twitter and Instagram. Email us at TMGTPod at gmail Rate, review, subscribe. Write something nice. Write something nice about Rory. Yeah, this this gem of a man. And um, you can also. We also need to thank our friend Kenny Reichel. For our theme song, as always. Yeah, yeah. And we need to thank producer Hank, who is like desperate to get out of this room right now. He's like, you guys should not be recording this long. Like, why do you get the yeah, fuck out of here? Every other time, he's been like pretty content, yeah. like laying down. He's definitely getting an answer. He's chasing his tail. He's like, guys, I don't want to hear about Nirvana anymore. I'm, I'm good. Um, Alex, any any final thoughts? No, was, it's been a pleasure. Well, yeah, it's glad to reconnect. Yes. Uh, or connect. <laughs> but you know, when when John said that we were going to have you on, I was like, holy shit, no way. Yeah. Um, the well, producer of the model kit. Yeah, I was like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rory, maybe we'll have you again some other day and um, talk about some other band. And um, that'll, that'll do it for us. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. See ya. Bye.